It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino at chumbacasino.com. Choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Well, it's one of our boys. The sun shines bright in my old Kentucky home. Hey there, boy. Uh, how about giving out with something peppy on that there skin box, huh? Yeah. Be ungrateful to me. I had a dog growing up. Show you a picture of him. Black, white feet, white throat, little white tip on his tail. I loved that dog. That dog knew when I was going to service. He knew when I got in trouble. He knew when I was phoning home. He'd come up, lay on the porch, and look at the phone. And it, and it'd ring if it was from me. He'd bark like wild, make sure somebody answered the phone. You know what his name was? Nigger. Nigger! And that was your dog? That's right. I love that dog. That, that wasn't no bad name. That's because he was black, shiny, pretty, muscular. Come on, nigger. You see, I wasn't using it in a bad way. They were run out of town, not because they were black. They were run out of Corbin because they were drinking, gambling, and raising all kinds of cane with uh, their newfound uh, pocket money from the railroad. Don't beat me, master. Please don't beat me, master. Don't beat that tired old body. No, no. I knew there were slaves, but I got in my head that they had to be nice slave owners because my relatives were nice people. How did you conceptualize quote unquote nice slave owners? Like what would that look like? What would well, nice slave owners do? Well, I I mainly blocked it out. My parents were both civil rights activists. They were very involved in integrating business and helping with open housing and they sent me to, to the school uh, inner city schools, blah, blah, blah. So I looked at how they connected their life, and I just didn't want to go there. I, I, so I, I knew there were lots of judges and lawyers in my father's family. And I, I, I just started, I invented things. I just imagined, oh, well, there probably were hardly any slaves there, and they were probably, you know, gracious to the house, you know, I, I don't, I, I just, I didn't go, I basically blocked it out. And that's why when I looked, when I finally made myself look, watch 12 Years of Slave by myself, and I saw a depiction of it, a very well-educated, cultured slave owner. And I realized, oh my God, that's my family. That cultured, educated, but doers. It, buying and selling human beings and dividing up families and it just broke like a dam the realization of the ugliness of it and then I went online and I started searching to find out how many slaves they ever they really had and you know it was over a hundred at its largest and that's when I knew oh my goodness I mean it just made me so sick so but as a teenager because I was dealing with so much black racism. You know, and uh, 
I'll never get after one of our championships. Frank says, hey, Russ, after the season's over, why don't you come down and spend a week with me down in Kentucky? I said, Frank, you're a good guy. There's no way in hell I'm going to go spend a week in Kentucky. Hang <laughs> hey, you out, sucker. Context of white supremacy. 14 years plus, still, in my view, not close, the best introductions in podcasting, not close. Context of white supremacy, Gus T., worthless Negro from Virginia, in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date Monday, April 24, 2023, so I have been told. We'll be here again on Wednesday. Time right and exact. Oh, could not be better. Uh, but we'll be here. It's like uh, part A, part B to follow on Wednesday. Same time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Tweet. Let people know, TikTok, social media, all of that, that the cows is on live. Folks can listen in, ask their questions, maybe learn something, especially if they have a connection to Kentucky. Definitely listen in. Uh, Quickly, the introduction that you heard. Let's see. So we got in Bugs Bunny talking to uh, Yosemite Sam, just doing whatever his southern version of my old Kentucky home and their southern pit heyday of Looney Tunes uh, that was followed by a snippet from the 1991 documentary Trouble Behind this is about the purge of black residents from Corbin Kentucky you might say Corbin hmm, how do I know Corbin stay tuned Uh, that's one of my favorite scenes in a documentary with many poignant moments but where we you know my dog was named Negro and how somehow that segues to you know the Negros were ran out of Corbin not because they were black because they were drinking raising cane I don't even know that sugar cane or anyway uh, so that's trouble behind we went back to Bugs Bunny please don't beat me okay uh, and then uh, Dorothy Bullet, she was a guest on the cows way back in 2016, January 2016. In fact, uh, we talked about there was a Seattle Times article where it's specifically titled, I felt sick about it, which she said in talking to a Seattle woman confronts family's history of slave ownership in Kentucky. And I asked her, I said, you know, how did you conceptualize this kindly slave masters uh, on the Oxmoor plantation in Kentucky? And you heard what she said. She invented things and blocked it out and all the rest. And it took, you know, an Oscar worthy performance from Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave to get her to reckon or reconsider with all of this. A plantation with well over a hundred Negras in bondage from her own lips, she said, in the bluegrass state of Kentucky. 
and and even even our timing as I said impeccable she said a part of her blocking out and inventing things and I'm not even going to deal with that was she was dealing with so much black racism here in the evergreen state of Washington white victimhood even pops up in our study for today anywho that was followed we heard the late great Bill Russell affectionately known as Felton X describing his teammate to hey you should come kick it with me in Kentucky and in fact he even has a longer anecdote about going to Kentucky and not being served than them saying peace we're not even going to play this game if you don't serve Negroes well then you don't need to see Negroes entertain you the great bill right now i was going to end right there but i had about five extra minutes i was totally satisfied and i would have still bragged stood by my work best in the business introductions extra times are we going to have a program on white supremacy racism in kentucky and have no inclusion of the louisville limp I think I could have got by with Bill Russell there in the picture together and all that and friends and all the rest of it. But <sighs> the Louisville lip. Anywho, for today's broadcast, I'll just mention uh, if you've already heard some of our previous work, it'll make a lot more sense. You'll have a deeper understanding. But if not, you can catch up. One of them, Dr. Catherine Fossil, subversive southerner her biography, Dr. Fossil's biography of Anne Braden. So glad we had her on the program way back when, 2014. Dr. Benjamin Reese, white man, his book Showman and the Slave, way back in 2012. Uh, He talks about P.T. Barnum and how all of that, the circus, the clowns, the elephants, all of that gets started with P.T. Barnum, white man, presenting the corpse of a black female slave Joyce Heth that's how we discussed it in the program that right the necrophilia but that right there the foundation minstrelsy blackface entertainment as we know it today Netflix and all Joyce Heth being presented for white amusement corpse of a black slave but that was 2012 would also probably help Dorothy Bullitt that whole program (laughs) 2016 uh, she was a guest on the broadcast if I had to give one more I would say Ned and Constance Sublet the slave coast in that book specifically they mention the song my old Kentucky home and they mention it as part of the genre of slave narratives like 12 years a slave and minstrel songs that became so popular with individuals classified as white and he even uses the term bolderized I'd never heard that term before but he talks about my old Kentucky home and one of our favorites here at the cows carry me back to old Virginia classic I'm playing it forever at least until we replace white supremacy with justice so our program for today how did we get here we didn't get here through Muhammad Ali. We didn't get here through Breonna Taylor. We didn't get here through the upcoming Kentucky Derby. We got here through the Catherine Massey Book Club. 
It is the global system of white supremacy racism known universe. So we are currently reading and on Thursday we will conclude Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer published in 1947. I gave you what the book should be called. The true title is Black Brazil or Black Men in Brazilian Soccer. That's the actual title of the book in case you want to get it. It's Black Men in Brazilian Soccer. But if the accurate title is Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer, reading that book that was published in Portuguese in 1947 there were three different things in a book that has a lot of footnotes translated to English in a book with many footnotes three things were not footnoted one lynching two the Ku Klux Klan three I will read the paragraph for a full context Jamie de Almeida would not even respond he was tall, black. <laughs> I'm snickering because that's that is a major theme of the book where black people are described this that alone. Black. Extra anyway, sorry. He was tall, handsome. He was a tall, handsome black man with a round face full of health, exuding that good dignity of the soul that used to be seen in the movies in certain imposing black men like Paul Robeson handpicked to play a butler of the old south in the United States one had only to close one's eyes and let one's fancy reign free to dress Jaime de Almeida as a butler in my old Kentucky home he spoke softly with the drawling voice of someone from Menace Garrus. Everything in him evoked cleanliness, goodness, loyalty. I will stop there. Negroes with Kinky Hair in Brazilian Soccer. Now again, this book was published in 1947 in Portuguese. In a book with many footnotes, I think hundreds there are no footnotes for lynching the Ku Klux Klan or the passage I just read I was staggered by that and said so when we read this live time and said dang I can only conclude hmm the white author assumes white people in South America in the middle of the 20th century would already be familiar no explanation needed for my old Kentucky home lynching or the Ku Klux Klan and they're kind of all the same thing staggering that is how we got here today talking about the book by the very same name my old Kentucky home just connecting the dots I can't say it enough Reading is more important than watching television. Will be a hoot to discuss the book and history of 
the local system of white supremacy racism in the state of Kentucky all wrapped up in that one juicy song uh, joining us live uh, prize winning author historian privileged white woman our guest uh, Dr. Emily Bingham Dr. Bingham are you with us hello that's a great introduction truly best in the business hands down been so for a long time uh thank you so much for hanging out with us on the broadcast who to chat more about this book and what it reveals so much about what it means to be white the local even global system of white supremacy racism in fact after reading this book crystal understanding of wow that's why no explanation needed for this song even in Brazil even in Portuguese wow Dr. Bingham anything you would like to share with our listeners before we get started who you are the work that you do wow um, well I am a Kentuckian and I live here now I have since uh, grad school days and um, I really love the state, there's a lot of great things, but it's, um, it's, it's tough around here. And today we're seeing news that the man who murdered Brianna Taylor was hired by a police department just down the road that I passed through on my way to Cincinnati, their territory. So that's, you know, the, the book unfolded for me in the years before all that happened. I was well into writing when Brianna Taylor uh, was killed in her home, her Kentucky home. Um, but, um, but it really kind of, uh, it felt like a, a stud for sure. <laughs> um, after spending that much time with these kinds of sources about the deep, deep cultural roots of, of white supremacy in America. As you write in your text, known universe we got here via brazil south america not even above the equator folks let's see uh as i already stated you self-classify privileged white woman is that accurate that is absolutely accurate yep and i don't know dorothy bullet but i know the oxmoor uh now called a farm where uh, she was talking about so i'm deeply familiar with that Wow, deeply not surprised. I had totally forgotten that I went into some of the detail in that program because they have journals. Wow, amazing. And there's been a terrific, uh, terrific podcast about that um, family and slavery in Kentucky kind of spinning out from that. It's called um, The Reckoning, actually. I highly recommend it to folks. It's only about six episodes they aren't too long and it um it does a super job but but yeah i mean this this song i love that you came to it from this uh i do think that it's easy to make this a kentucky story and it is but it is absolutely also a national and global phenomenon 
And this song has been so saturated around the globe that it, 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 people just don't know that, but it's true. People in Japan, people in, I don't know, Poland, people in Russia, people in France, people in obviously South America um, were exposed to the song through the 19th century and through the 20th century because it started out and continued to be part of the American entertainment you know, complex, starting with blackface minstrelsy, which was a global phenomenon. Remains different forms. Uh, we start all of our broadcasts uh, with definitions, uh, racism, white supremacy, I use those two terms as synonyms. You as a historian should appreciate definitions. Uh, the definition I use, a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Do you think such a system exists? Do you think that definition is accurate? I mean, I think that system absolutely exists. And I guess the part of the definition that I find most tr intriguing, also perhaps most, you know, troubling is, you know, how you define that active participation. I'm not sure if I, I didn't write down the word you used, but dedication, something like that, dedicated to. I mean, the system is absolutely dedicated to. It's just that the people in it don't, most, many of them, uh, don't think they are part of that system, so they don't feel their own agency. And this um, this song is was for me, the kind of like wake up call, like, oh, I didn't know. So therefore I was, you know, going along doing something thinking I was a perfectly good white person, <laughs> right? Which, I, you know, later realized I wasn't in many levels, but even on things as small, seemed as small as a single song, that it could be part of this system too. And that made me really realize that the point is that we need to wake up and be attentive and realize that there are bodies like this that lie around us all the time that we're stepping on, literally bodies, and we don't notice and have been taught to ignore the pain that, that you know, that causes. So, yeah, I, I think your definition is good, but I think that that, that tension of awareness is <laughs> is the problem because there's so many things that... that put white people to sleep and that they use to soothe themselves, including my old Kentucky home. <laughs> okay. For listeners, I just want to make note of the chuckling that was happening. Uh, nothing funny about the definition of white supremacy racism, mm -hmm. in my opinion. Uh, I want to make a request and then go back with that question one more time. Uh, my request, because there were many uh, metaphors within your response about white people being asleep and then waking them up and it's been my experience that frequently white people are not truthful when they speak to non-white people about racism white supremacy and one of the ways that they are not truthful they use metaphors and be very 
uh, loquacious, do a lot of pussyfitting where they're not directly speaking to the issue, white supremacy, racism, and frequently not even answering your question. So I will request if you can make sure we get explicit, uh, decisive answers. It uh, doesn't matter what your response, if you agree, disagree or whatever, that's great. And then you can give us the detail, but decisive answers. And I'd prefer if we can be explicit and cause I mean, sleeping and all the, like you're awake now, I'm awake now. Nobody sleep. Nobody needs waking up. Uh, if you can be explicit mm-hmm. so we don't have all these metaphors, uh, is that a reasonable request? Can you, is that something that you can do for us, please? That sounds like a good idea. I shall try. Awesome. I'll prompt about that as we proceed. So I want to go back to the definition because you said the definition was good, but I asked, is it accurate? And that's important for many reasons for listeners. Accurate, accurate. So the definition was a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Does such a system exist? I think she did say yes. Is that an accurate definition? Yeah, I think as a system that absolutely exists and I am part of it because I am part of the people who are identified as white and I identify myself as white. Okay. Uh, is it accurate? I still, was that yes? No. Is it accurate? I mean, I, 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 I think it, it's, it works. It, it works. And I think the thing that to me was interesting, uh, sorry, but uh, about that is how a system, how people work within a system. So that systems are big and broad and we need to see them acting. And we also need to see how individual people make up that system and are part of doing its work knowingly and unknowingly. That's too loquacious. I'm sorry, Gus. <laughs> no apologies. The chuckling um, again. I'm, I'm just pointing out for uh, listeners even there, it was removed from individuals classified as white, like herself, privileged white woman. She already said that, wrote that in the text, in fact, uh, doing its work, doing their work. Everything would have to go back because it always we had that last week where racism is out there. None of this. There's not a computer. I don't think we have AI sitting around generating minstrel shows and songs and such. Have you it would have to be individuals right. classified as white. Right doing their work to maintain their system important difference and that gets pussyfooted away all the time and that's the sort of thing that I always point out that is deliberate white supremacy racism because we're not being accurate in describing this problem that's a part of how we non-white people stay confused were you familiar with this broadcast the context of white supremacy before I contacted you? No, I wasn't, but I was um, thrilled to hear you mention Kate Fossil, who I know closely and adore, and whose book was super important to me, and 
Um, I saw some of the things you've been writing about and referring to when I checked it out, but no, I wasn't previously reaching out. Gotcha. Dr. Fossil, way back uh, 2014, very important to reference that book uh, regularly. Biography Kings here at the Cows. Let's see. Uh, Do you think, Dr. Bingham, do you think it's logical, since there is a system of white supremacy racism, do you think it's logical for any non-white person to be suspicious of anyone classified as white, yourself included, that they could be a racist? Do you think it's logical to have that suspicion? Absolutely. Grand. Uh, let's see. We, uh, I will not. There's a non-white author. He wrote a piece 2014, same year Dr. Fossil visited with us. He wrote a piece in the New Republic about racism specifically and he said that often white people, excuse me, it's white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism, but rarely are they pained enough. This is one, wow, weezers, even just for the context of your book, My Old Kentucky Home and what you wrote about. So do you think Dr. Fossil, as a white woman, privileged white woman, Knowing white people, historian, your study of white people, white supremacy, racism, do you think a substantial number of individuals classified as white are greatly and sincerely pained by racism? Do you think that's true, Dr. Fossil? Um, I wish I were Dr. Fossil, but I'm not tonight. <laughs> Dr. Bingham, um, Dr. Bingham, sorry. So, so. So, um, so are there a substantial number of sufficiently pained white people out there? Is that what you're saying? I mean, so, I mean, there. I think there are a number of them. I couldn't put a number, uh, you know, an actual number on that. But I do, I, you know, this this the statement you started with that, you know, rarely, rarely are they pained enough. I absolutely agree with. I mean, that's. Right on the right on the money. That's we did that again because I said let's forget that let's move that to the side. The first part of the statement: white people are often greatly and sincerely pained by racism. Do you think a substantial number of individuals classified as white are often greatly and sincerely pained? by racism and I'm even for folks keep in mind for the book that we're reading so when you get to the end do you get the sense that white people are greatly pained about what they've heard from black people reporting on my old Kentucky home hmm um I'm sorry I'm not sure the question you're asking is there a substantial number of people who are greatly pained um, I just don't know what substantial is. I know there are, but I don't think my point is that the pain isn't enough when there are not enough of them because we are not, or pain isn't maybe the way to address the issue because that has not resolved um, our situation here as a country. 
at all. Not enough white people are feeling this, and there are plenty of white people who deny that there's anything to feel painful about at all. Hmm. And so I, I, it's not enough. It's not, that's, that's, you know, not working. I mean, that, do I, I, I don't know if you're trying to connect it to the end of the book in some way that I can, you know, address, but I'm happy to try if, if you want to do that. We'll walk through some of the text and revisit. That is a curious response. I will replace. That is a suspicious response, given the book that I have read, that we do have a system of white supremacy that's been in place for, who knows, centuries. But we'll revisit that after we get through a bit of the text. Uh, let's see. You, I already mentioned it. Just hopefully we'll get a breakdown. The full sentence is, I am a historian by training and profession. I am also a privileged white Kentuckian descended on both sides from people who owned people. When you say privileged white Kentuckian, what do you mean when you say privileged? That I'm both economically, educationally, um, and by the nature of my, my skin, I'm privileged in a system that privileges uh, class, you know, by class um, by education and by um, by a pigment. So I I grew up in a family that had um, owned media companies um, that owned the newspaper here in Louisville at the time when I was growing up. Um, I went to private school um, uh, while my city system was undergoing um, desegregation and busing. Um, I, you know, was, uh, yeah, those are the kind of privileges that are, you know, extreme in this society, actually. And I was also taught that, you know, I came from a liberal, you know, family, and to be very proud of that, that, you know, was... uh, even, you know, obviously even privileged among people with pigment like mine, that, um, that I should be very proud of the educational qualities and so forth that I was given. Hmm. When you say people with pigment like mine, you mean individuals classified as white? Yeah. Okay. And you... So and the, if they... Yeah. Were you going to add something? Feeling privileged... I was just going to add, you know, those who, for instance, were opposing school segregation, I was supposed to, you know, I I got the message growing up that I was, uh, you know, also, you know, better than somehow or certainly privileged uh, compared to them because they didn't get it somehow. Hmm. So. I had a lot to learn that 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 that, that liberal uh, liberal values were, were were certainly not enough and were you know crushing in some ways uh, in many ways in all kinds of ways what was happening in the sixties and seventies. Hmm. When <clears throat> hearing all of the access that you had and family owning a media company and private school and all the rest of it. Uh, even they're going to the Kentucky Derby and folks are coming by all these powerful white men. Uh, accuracy, I think, is so important. And in many ways, even the discussion we were having about the definition that I gave before, 
One of the main ways that white people practice white supremacy racism is through deceptive use of words. Uh, that word privilege uh, is very passive, and particularly the way that it's invoked in discussions on racism, white supremacy. I've said for years, I think the more accurate word here, especially if we're talking about media company shaping you know views and opinions even what is news and private school and mm -hmm. the advantages that all of that confers people that you have access to just being classified as white and in fact you said you grew up you're part of kentucky were there any other black people in your region of kentucky um yes quite quite a large population in louisville in your neighborhood, I mean, like the place where your house, like your neighbors, did you have black oh, neighbors? Oh, in my, absolutely not. Definitive. No. She it even... was a segregated place and almost all over the uh, city was segregated. Mm. Uh, it's I... one of the most segregated cities in the country today, still. Mm. I mean, that's not true of my neighborhood now, but it is. it was true of the neighborhood I was born into and the city I was born into. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I mean that's a really good point. That, that's passive. Um, I mean, I was born into a family that was practicing white supremacy, and so was, uh, yeah, that's what we were doing. Much, just striving for, and we do have a system of white supremacy, so I think just striving for accuracy, that does a lot to help with confusion, so, you know, using the most accurate terms, much obliged. Uh, let's see, you got the privileged, more accurate term, practicing white supremacy, racism, own slaves on both sides, my goodness. Uh, with this book specifically, I'm going, what would I call it, kind of fast-forwarding way to closer to the end of the text to kind of get you to the question is going to be in terms of what specific problem were you trying to solve with writing this book, my old Kentucky home, but I'm skipping all the way this for me. I have the uh, e-copy, so I'm skipping all the way to four. Dang, okay. So this is all the way to 438, the e-copy uh, for folks. This is chapter 10. So I'll read this and then you can tell us what problem you were trying to solve. This is about the Kentucky Derby, which is literally days away from taking place. Uh, Dr. Bingham, my bad again, said Dr. Postle before. Dr. Bingham writes, the old South atmosphere dominated the tracks 20th century brand. It was not so out of place for privileged young revelers to claim the space recharging racial tensions and commitments Sullivan saw something communal motivated them each looks to his friends faces as they sang and sway as if for confirmation of the feeling they are feeling disproving legislators and wishful editorialists white attendees unabashedly demonstrated their full awareness of the song's overtones. I have to rewind sometimes. Man, certain words just... Woo! So one more time. 
white attendees unabashedly demonstrated their full awareness of the song's overtones for their own and others' ears. In the early years of this century, a newly transplanted New Englander attended his first Derby Day party. He joined a friend's annual family derby gathering, and when the university marching band began to play, the partygoers overrode the broadcast and restored the original lyric, the brazen, outright, and above all proud hollering of really vile racist language by his educated socially respected host that's what Dorothy Bullitt said in the introduction left the newcomer speechless his friend apologized embarrassed it was she said tradition calling out racist language or ideas in white settings is disruptive given the alcohol infused anticipation surrounding the playing of my old Kentucky home debating the D word D word is darkies in this context might provoke a brawl now Dr. Bingham what problem were you trying to solve with this book Um, so the problem I began with was that I did not in my mind have any clear picture of this song that I was singing along with and that I was telling people to sing along with too, or at least that this is what was going to happen if they came to Kentucky and went to the Kentucky Derby. And when I felt a certain amount of like, just, you know, odd that I didn't know and I looked it up, um, I was, you know, smacked with the clear reality that it was a song about the horrors of slavery. It was a song about the slave trade and there was nothing ambiguous about it. And also that that atrocity was being, um, you know, sort of enjoy, well, that atro- atrocious topic had been turned into something that I and so many people uh, around me had enjoyed and thought was just great and um, a tradition to be celebrated. So those two things did not fit together to me in any way. And, but it took a long time, you know, I I looked at it. I I was like, what do I do? I don't like this. I don't want to be part of this, but, that's and then in realizing um when I gave a short talk about the background of the song and what I'd learned, um, I had friends in that audience who were of both races, uh, both black and white friends. And the there was a really it was a gift because I had friends who said, you know, I am white and I I've heard this and I'm never singing this song again, but I had no idea. Um, it was about that. Uh, on the other hand, they did have some idea that it was something about race because they were old enough to have grown up before that, you know, the racial slur was, you know, officially excised. 
Um, and then on the uh, same time, there were uh, black friends in that group who said, I can't believe you all didn't know what it was about. I can't, I, I, I've been upset by this song my entire life. Um, and I don't understand how, why you, why you love it. And how could you not have known what it was? So I, I chalked this up to something that is, um, a segregated memory. I mean, it's no surprise that there's a segregated memory in this, um, country or that white, you know, people could know it was maybe sort of racial, but not that it was about slavery itself. Um, and yet that, that, um, that tension gave me the sense that there was something deeper going on that I hadn't, you know, just that I hadn't expected to find in, in a piece of, um, what do most of us seemed like innocuous American culture. And I wanted to understand exactly how it got in there so deep so that white people could completely, you know, uh, tell themselves that it was, this was a, a, a lovely part of our heritage. And it's not. There's nothing defensible about it. If you are dedicated to the system of white supremacy, it is exactly as stated, a lovely part of our heritage dare I say religion of white supremacy sacrosanct Uh, I want to hop to one important Bill Russell still with us Felton X so glad we read his the biography King's Second Wind I'm so glad that we uh, read that I probably wouldn't have been included Bill Russell in the introduction today and he had such he has such birch memories about the bluegrass state um you later on in the text talk about the many different ways that this song is venerated even when people have made white people aware of the racist problems with this song and it's still dedicated this is about the beloved University of Kentucky go Wildcats you write no doubt this is true the song's pleasing memorable melody played year over year explains much of its longevity but so has its institutionalization beyond Churchill Downs Kentucky Derby Stephen Foster's 1853 ballad about slavery has echoed loudly in basketball arenas and football stadiums generating pride and unity for Kentucky fans and their teams at University of University of Kentucky's men's basketball final home game of the 1987-1988 season, the former governor A.B. Happy Chandler rose from his wheelchair in the middle of Rupp Arena and now for one of the most emotional moments in sports NBC's Tom Hammond announced on the national broadcast the octogenarian legend closed his blue eyes and crooned there's our word again Cheerleaders locked arms and swayed. Graduating players towered over parents who joined them on the floor. Happy, known for his tendency to use racist language, moved smoothly over tis summer. The people are gay. Indeed, Chandler's poignant rendering of the one-time blackface minstrel tune on senior nights in the June 1970s and 1980s might have helped reconcile UK's overwhelmingly white fan base 
to changing standards of racial etiquette and the changing racial makeup of college sports. As far back as 1913, the UK band had sounded my old Kentucky home across the gridiron at Wildcats games. A student called it as sacred as a hymn, religion of white supremacy, inspiring men to do things they are otherwise not capable of doing. The school's 1917 songbook, bound in royal blue and white, contained the star-spangled banner, Dixie, our favorite, and other southern favorites. Over the 20th century, Stephen Foster's 1850s hit became a cherished feature of UK sports and student culture. Happy Chandler's grandson, the former congressman Ben Chandler, said of senior night, my old Kentucky home was the signature song at the at the signature event at the state's signature university. <laughs> like, wow. All right. We got it. We got it. I read all of this. Bill Russell. Bill Russell. Man, particularly the line uh, about the overwhelmingly white fan base. That fella Adolph Rupp, do you know his reputation at the University of Kentucky? Yes, I do. Yes. Did you think it was, uh, I guess you can explain for our listeners, but, or I guess let's do that first. Can you explain to our listeners his reputation at the University of Kentucky? So his reputation was for, you know, rejecting, well, not wanting to segregate, desegregate the basketball team that he coached. And, he was an extremely powerful coach, from my understanding, um, you know, in in basketball history at UK. But he his reputation is deeply tarnished, and nonetheless, the arena is still named for him. Um, he, you know, resisted when other schools were starting to, you know, add black players, and there were plenty of black players, obviously. Um, he didn't want to do it and he made it clear that he didn't want to do it because he didn't want black players. Hmm. I think that's so important. Bill, Bill Russell, one of the great, he's being celebrated right now. The playoffs are going on right now. So many university of Kentucky alumni out there, De'Aaron Fox and Malik Monk and, Pat Riley, if we're going to go all the way back, and Anthony Davis, so many bluegrass alumni, wildcat alumni out there playing NBA basketball. Bill, they all got that number six on for Bill Russell. Bill Russell refused to be inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Why? Adolf Rupp, and he mentioned him by name in his memoir and saying, you all have got this guy enshrined as one of the greatest in basketball and he made it so clear he did not want black players no Negros fought against this forever they have whole documentaries and books about his dedication to white supremacy racism when I read that and said dang we don't have a sentence and in fact before the years before this book was published they were already saying hey maybe this arena shouldn't be named Rupp Arena it still is but Maybe it shouldn't be named that. Like, was there a reason you didn't give like a paragraph with some context of all that? Because I thought that, and even it would help explain why they have an overwhelmingly white fan base that adores this song. Yes. 
Uh, <laughs> well, the, I mean, yeah, I had to keep the book a little bit uh, shorter than it, I would have liked. Um, but that's a good point that for many people reading that, they might not have understood the context of UK basketball. It's the, I mean, by the 80s, that was definitely not the case by the time that story I'm telling. But, yeah, it's important context. And they were, you know, really lagged and... Um, it was, it's, you know, one of the shames. But the other reason there's an overwhelmingly white fan base is that uh, Kentucky is overwhelmingly white. And so, uh, and there at that time in the 80s, and this is like a little sideline, uh, because of Rupp's uh, you know, reputation and therefore UK basketball's University of Louisville was seen as kind of the be more welcoming um, place for interracial sports and um, all the player, black players to come play. And so, and that was also located in a city with a much more, you know, robust black population. So there was this kind of rivalry that I think was racialized as well. I mean, there's a huge rivalry between those two schools anyway, but in basketball, um, you know, there was, I think, a, a definite, you know, urban versus rural base, fan base differential. Um, so for what that, that's worth, that's sort of more context. But by the 80s, you know, there had been, you know, there were, you know, on that floor when he's singing those senior night songs and inflicting that onto players. Um, I, I've, I've since heard from actually a number of players um first-hand and second-hand, uh, third-hand, that they were sort of, they felt subjected to this song. I mean, and they were even told, players were told into the, I don't know, 70s anyway, that they had to be ready to sing that song. Um, so, and, and you know, there's the song in its original form, and then there's the song as as Rupp sang it, which was supposedly the cleaned-up and polite form. And I, one of the things that my book, I think, uh, suggests is that the song in any form with its, you know, because of its long sort of, you know, expression of white supremacist ideas about black people and slavery and excusing them is the song itself is a problem. It's not just the words. It's the whole, the whole package. It is a problem. It's one among the many problems <laughs> I, sure. I, I think it's not not enough to just say, oh, we now don't use that ugly word that those, you know, young men at the racetrack that you read from that passage were in, doing even when they knew they weren't supposed to do it, because uh, that was in the 90s or early 2000s. I want to um, just hop in happening. there for sure. I want to just hop in because I want to try to cover as much as, as we can, uh, Dr. Bingham. The Adolph Rupp. I suspect, especially if they're folks, millennials and, and even, hey, folks who don't pay attention to NCAA basketball, bravo, who probably do not know that history of Adolph Ruff. And I think that's just because mm-hmm. that provides so much important context. It's not just dedication to this song. Even once we've made you aware of it, it's also someone who was openly dedicated to rejecting black players and embrace that as a part of the school ethos and 
he's still venerated to this day the same way dang we can't change this song we can't stop singing this at the derby we can't change the name of the arena either that in my view is an important admit that's the same type of boulderizing where you have white people powerful white men at powerful public Mm -hmm. institutions taxpayer funded public institutions to reject black people and contribute to an institutional that's what I mean about systems that is a person Adolf Rupp and then the same thing they do not get the oh yeah this guy was a dedicated white supremacist that gets left out for brevity or whatever no that in my view deliberate white supremacy racism from a historian you know most of us probably would not that's one just want to get major omissions out of the way I included that segment from the documentary Trouble Behind on Corbin, Texas. Have you seen that documentary and or are you familiar with what happened in 1919 Corbin, excuse me, not Texas, Corbin, Kentucky? Yes, um, I have not seen the documentary. I took uh, note of it and I'm looking, going to look it up. I have um, read Dr. George Wright's uh, book on um, race, racial violence in Kentucky and came across it at that point, if not before. So I'm familiar with where Corbin is and I've been in it and through it once. Um, so yeah, I, I, and it was a, I don't remember the date offhand, but I know that it was a major expulsion, uh, and, you know, a, you know, example of, you know, outright uh, racial violence. The kind of thing that, you know, I mean, it goes all the way back. Anyway, yes, I am aware of it, but I would like to see this documentary. Thank you. Right on. It is fascinating. Dog named nigger. Uh, I just, even though you hadn't seen the documentary, you are familiar with it, had read about it. She's a trained historian, historian by profession. That's another one. Uh, Important omission and, I say that especially so because, and I mention this regularly, Elliot Jaspin, he was a guest on our program, his book, Buried in the Bitter Waters, about the history of racist purges of black people from areas like Corbin, Kentucky. Most of the time, we do not think, dang, this happened over 260 times. Yes, that's what Elliot Jaspin says in his book, White Man. But more importantly, we'll think of Rosewood or Tulsa, Oklahoma some of the other events where this has happened not oh dang this happened in kentucky dang this happened in texas dang this happened in arkansas in all 260 is a lot we'll just think of two or three and leave it at that i mean that should be talked about regular to write a whole book about the history of white supremacy racism in kentucky and leave out oh dang there was a racial purge here where they dumped all the black people which also contributes to we don't really have a whole lot of black people here to begin with. That's well, absolutely, another. and that's a very good, very good point that needs to be connected. You know, so many of the black people who were here at the end of the Civil War and even for two generations after that fled as they fled other southern states and, um, you know, hoping to get away from that kind of threat. I mean, uh Yeah nowhere to run even brazil 
No way. I'm taking Joe Lewis. We are talking about boxing soon, but he did say you can run, but you can't hide. Absolutely right, Joe Lewis. You can run, but you can't hide from the system of white supremacy racism. So those are two big omissions that I would say. And I mean, dang, from a white historian, that's the sort of thing where that no, not accident, not brevity. That is white supremacy racism two times covering up man that's the sort of thing that is done he talked about that Elliot Jasper and that's pattern with those events where white people don't talk about them I get my acronym one more time moo minimize privilege minimize obfuscate and omit black plague omitted and then the racism of Adolf institutional white supremacy racism those are two big omissions particularly for a historian now moving forward things that did get included you start the book off my alma mater university of virginia thomas jefferson raping thomas jefferson uh their griefs are transient those numberless afflictionless are less felt and sooner forgotten with them notes on the state of Virginia why at the very beginning of this year book it's not even the correct state Dr. Bingham (laughs) well I mean I do think one thing I would just try to point out is that this is a song that was nationally and globally popular so I focused on Kentucky in some parts but not in the general take on the book so um so anyway, about why did I start with, with Thomas Jefferson's um, shocking but also um, probably not surprising statement about black uh, black feeling, right? And I, I because I think that this encapsulates a view of slavery and uh, how it and and also white supremacy practiced after slavery that um, is the one that white people continued, you know, they, they felt it, they continued to feel it, and they have, and they do continue to feel it. And when you look at directly at evidence of how um, when people uh, who are black are in medical situations and their pain is literally not um, not accounted or counted in the same way that it is with um, white patients. I mean, these are what you look at black maternal mortality and experiences in um, childbirth. So those, that is what I was trying to get at, that that is a, a sentiment about black people, a belief, a white supremacist belief that this song, I believe, um, contributed to. Love it. Love it. Um, I thought that was a great choice, too, to reference. Always love being able to invoke TJ's name, the Mount Rushmore, one of the most revered of the uh, white, uh, raping Thomas Jefferson, old Sally Hemings. <laughs> Anywho, um, you, I'm skipping through here. This is kind of, you give some of the foundation of Stephen Foster and how this song was written before the Civil War, 1853, unless my memory is bad, uh, and how all of this comes to be the tune that we know now and is revered throughout the state and University of Kentucky and 
Kentucky Derby, which is coming up in a few days throughout the world. I said we got here via Brazil. Uh, you put this in the foundation of minstrel shows. That's why I mentioned Dr. Benjamin Reese, the showman and the slave, exact same time period. Uh, so this is from chapter one. Tis summer. The darkies are gay. Love it. Uh, the It's one of the best chapter titles ever. Right up there. One of the other books I'll talk about. Uh, this is, uh, I'm picking up mid-page, Poking Fun, Diffused Tension, and the Mask of Blackness was used in mocking everything from politicians to foreigners, Shakespeare to Shakers, the powerful and the marginal. The axe cast a potent spell. A minstrel show came to town, recalled one Rhode Islander, and I thought of nothing else for weeks. The craze reached into the White House. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, Nixon's piano. We did have him on the program. <laughs> he did a whole book up. Ah, anyway. Uh, the craze reached into the White House where showmen performed for the especial amusement of the President of the United States, his family, and friends. The millionaire Negro singer Edwin Pierce Christie, a white man, topped the crowded field of America's signature entertainment. Signature, that word again. Stephen Foster's <laughs> elder by a decade. Christie first assembled his ensemble. Oh, man. I have to pause here just because our timing is out of this world. If I had not gone to Buffalo for that trial, Peyton Gendron, I would not have even known this. I went to Buffalo. I did the History Museum uh, exhibit at the Buffalo Downtown Library, Buffalo Erie County Library. They talked about Mark Twain, John J. Audubon, and a whole lot of other racists, really, because they talked about Nigger Jim, Mark Twain, uh, history in Buffalo. When I talked to a black historian, he said, man, they had a whole brothel down there by Niagara Falls, and they don't even talk about that. And I said, do what? He said, they don't even talk about it. They would talk about Mark Twain and all this other nonsense. They don't even bring that up. Let me go back to reading where I left off at. Christie first assembled his ensemble in a Buffalo brothel frequented by Erie Canal barge workers. He transferred the troupe to Manhattan and from 1847 through 1854, they played nightly at Lower Broadway's 2500 seat Mechanics Hall. Foster Songs further furthered Christie's project of making blackface safe for the ballooning bourgeois while retaining its working class base, whereas blackface blackface performances were initially brief comic interacts within larger circuses, circuses or plays. Christie mounted full-length standalone entertainments and charged accordingly. I will stop there. I will stop there. But all of this provides the foundation for the time period of when these songs were created and began. Dixie, one of our favorites, carry me back to old Virginia. Can you give a little bit more about this context? Context in which Stephen Foster starts making all these great songs, old Black Jim and such. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I had one person at a, uh, at, at a talk just say to me, he hadn't read that whole paragraph, but he said, um, can you just explain to me why people thought this was entertainment? 
And I said, if I could really explain that in a, in a quick answer, I'd, I'd, you know, have something better than PhD because it's, it is, it, it is the, it was the most important entertainment, the most popular entertainment in this country. And your listeners may be very, very well aware of this, but I can tell you most Americans are not that, um, that it was it was the cultural export that this country uh, offered to the world um, went all over, all over the world with American white white people in blackface doing shows in Europe for royalty and in Australia in Africa in uh, South America absolutely which is probably where my old Kentucky home first hit. Um, was through blackface minstrels there, and it was an urban thing, which I think is also important. It was not something that came out of the plantation. Actually, it was a uh, the the songs, dances, um, and um, and you know musical instrumentation were claimed to be captured from authentic plantations, but they were the fabrications and fantasies of white creators and they so this thing was a total hit for reasons that are complex and yet uh, we are living still with that legacy because they ingrained into American entertainment um, the you know these stereotypes that it perpetrated um, about black men, about black women, about um, plantations, about slavery, um, as a like literally a happy condition, literally. So that those are things that I think every American should know that it was blackface minstrelsy, then jazz, then Hollywood, then maybe rap, <laughs> as our you know the pantheon of cultural uh, impact on the world. White supremacy, racism dominates all of that, not some innate system, whether it's Al Jolson, which he talks about in the book and or the exploitation of these artists, or how it ends up where now only white people listen to Louis Armstrong performing my old Kentucky home and such. All of that white supremacy, racism through and through uh, just rewinding. Um, I think at least my if someone were to ask me to explain that I would put Dr. Benjamin Reese showman the showman and the slave I point to that and then Dr. Raul Perez the jokes of white folks or excuse me it's the souls Mm -hmm. of white jokes get the accurate title the souls of white jokes same thing Abraham Lincoln loved a darky joke he walks through, he talked about, or he didn't even include Abraham Lincoln. I had to bring that up on the program. But either way, when we talked last summer, whew, that sort of thing, he said, racist jokes right now, 21st century, racist jokes are as popular as the Los Angeles Lakers, meaning Google searches. They are, they're playing tonight. I already mentioned two times. University of Kentucky <laughs> alum Anthony Davis, 2012 champions playing tonight. Two times. 
just as popular. People search for the Lakers, Bron James, Kobe Bryant. They search for the Lakers about the same as they search for nigger jokes. And it was black people specifically nigger jokes, the souls of white jokes. I said, all that to me, the minstrel shows, Al Jolson, all of that to me, white people enjoy practicing racism. Why would this be so timeless? Why would they be so dedicated to it? Why do we need old nigger Jim to come and hang out at the foster spot where he made the song in Kentucky? Why do we need all of this unless white people enjoy practicing racism? That's the only logical conclusion that especially when you bring all this up and they're still resistant. We got to have a couple of days. Aren't they going to do my old Kentucky home in a couple of days at the Derby? Did they change their mind, I think? No? They're still going to do it? Um, I, I, You know, do you want to lay a bet with me? <laughs> I'm going to take the over that they're going to do it. <laughs> Give me anything you want to put down that, yes, it is still going to be played. A thousand to one, you know? Would you <laughs> lay? <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, there is no, uh, almost no chance um, that, that they will change that this year. And yet, I, you know, and and as you say, with the system that it's part of, that is no surprise. Um, I do believe that some people have read the song and read the book and seen what, or at least had to look at the book. And, you know, some people even at Churchill Downs have probably taken a few minutes to look at the book. But I also know that up until, um, as you know, until the book was published, there were people on its, you know, well-endowed board of directors who um, had no knowledge that they would admit to. So that's, um, you know, this is the system and it rolls. And it uh, I like to call it, it in some parts of, I don't use this in, term in the book, but um, there's, there's something I call mild Kentucky home economics. Um, the, song at Churchill Downs is part of a sort of secret recipe, not secret, it's part of a very traditional recipe that is um, clung to because it has uh, redounded to the economic as well as, as you point out, the emotional benefit of white people. And until one or the other of those changes, it's either no longer emotionally beneficial and enjoyable or no longer economically beneficial to the corporation, it will stay. Um, but I, I do think more people are emotionally unsatisfied with it this year than last. That's, that's my, my hope. <laughs> Keep hope alive. That's what they say. Keep Obama told us that one too. I'm, I'm going to take the wager on that one for whew, matter of fact, I want to make sure that point is not lost. I said, I think it's white people enjoy practicing racism. And she said, the recipe, oh my goodness, the delectable Negro, human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. Corbin, Kentucky is where they purge the Negros, unless my memory is bad. That's also Colonel Sanders, Kentucky Fried Chicken, they call it finger licking good man I had to look at all of that in this book and 
have to come back have to come back to that but she said the recipe secret recipe that's what the colonel says in his white suit fresh off the oxmore plantation Mm -hmm. i'm sorry yeah you're right i was uh, i think i i was kind of conflating the secret recipe of kfc with the traditional Mm -hmm. recipe of uh of churchill downs Mm -hmm. and they are all they're all of a piece they're one and the same extra crispy it's one and the same the delectable negro human consumption and homoeroticism in you it's going to come up repeatedly in this that right there i told you i judge books not by how cute they are and how many alliterations how much do i learn how much does this reveal about white supremacy racism i mention that book almost every program and this, oh, it will come up again delectable negro continuing uh Going back to, I need to ask a white person this, because most of the time I found you are a privileged white woman writing this here book, Family Practices, White Supremacy, Racism for Generations. Uh, It's been my experience that individuals who are not white, especially black, are ignorant about all of this sort of thing. We don't read these sort of books. We'll get to that later. But you write about million-dollar hit, Kentucky-born entertainer Ernest Hogan's All Coons Look Alike to Me sold a million copies. The star comedy duo of Burt Williams and George Walker sang watermelon-eating straight razor battles and chicken-stealing in the Coons trade market. It goes on to give more details, but this is the second time. Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly, two times, he also mentions... All coons look alike to me. Dr. O'Reilly is a white man. Uh, black people, I, don't, I would suspect that you've heard, black people have an affinity for calling other black people coons. I've had other individuals classified as black argue with me about the constructive value of calling other black people coons. And why we need to do this. This is something helpful. How do you process that being a privileged white woman, historian, who knows, wow, there's a white man from my home state who sold a million copies without any streaming services, YouTube, smartphones, a million copies of all coons look alike to me how do you process our affinity our being black people's affinity with calling other black people coons well i believe hogan was a black man so it's a similar situation to carrying me back to old virginia where you have an entertainer who is you know working within a system that (laughs) obviously hugely rewards inventive racist material and he uh, is swept into that and I can't answer for you know I have no answer for your question about whether that's a word that is a something that black people could use in a beneficial way or not but I I, that the the, origin of Ernest Hogan's um, you know writing that song and having that success is really important because it goes to the early 
um, history of successful black entertainers and who got to be successful. And it was the people who um, worked within the idiom of, of, of minstrelsy and racist, you know, depictions and constructions like all coons look like me, like to me. Strive for accuracy. My bad. Ernest Hogan is classified as a black male. Scott, <laughs> I guess my brain computer wanted to be like, no, it can't be. But yeah, I mean, I played Paul Robeson doing my old Kentucky. And he did the version darkies, uh, in the song. I could have picked, uh, Louis Armstrong's, uh, version of that. And black, I think a black person is credited with making, uh, carry me back to old Virginia. That's what Doug Wilder, yeah. former governor said. So, that exactly as you said, hey, system of white supremacy is profitable. But as I'm just asking as a historian, the scholarly analysis here, how do you process that black people in a system of white supremacy where all coons look alike to me has been a platinum bestseller? How do you process now in the 21st century black people calling other black people coons? What do you what sense do you make of that? How do you process that as a historian? I mean, I, I think it, it could come to the same place that people say about the N-word, about reclaiming and taking, you know, the power of it out of the hands of only white people to use in an abusive and, you know, hateful and, you know, supremacist way. But that's not my, I, I, that's the context I would, I guess, place it in from a historical point of view but i'm not very familiar with its use in current day um you know in current discourse actually i mean i've i've not shocked that it's around but i'm not i have not you know looked at that in any way or seen you know a lot of examples of that in front of me so um but yeah i mean it's you know many 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 of the um purchasers of those million copies were white right uh, probably by far the majority. At the same time, I, to add a little more context to this, um, people like Ernest Hogan had very devoted black fans. And, you know, the way that historians that I have read um, have been performance, you know, people who, who study performance um, have looked at this is that, again, you know, there were you know, people like Cydia Hartman, for instance, um, you know, look at such performances as, you know, sort of forced iterations at the same time of, of racist systems. At the same time, there were, uh, within that, there were sometimes windows for artistry um, that black audiences could truly appreciate uh, in ways that white audiences did not a lot of the time and sometimes there were double meanings and the I mean so artistry I'm talking about like how you know someone was able to dance or able to sing and vocalize and then but the material itself was often um, you know explicitly demeaning Um, so those are in, in a very problematic tension and you're talking about a system that starved you know pure you know black artists from being able to do what they really wanted to do uh, and required. And the the chapter I write about what's called Negro minstrelsy 
is about that era of, um, you know, of, of black performers being on stages, but being constrained profoundly. Context of white supremacy, our guest, Dr. Emily Bingham, talking about uh, My Old Kentucky Home, her book, the song, movie, 1938, System of White Supremacy, locally, nationally, globally. Uh, You include quite a bit of your own family history and connection to Kentucky and this song uh, and kind of how you learn what it means to be white in a system of white supremacy racism. Uh, You talk about your experience at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, uh, go Tar Heels, I reckon. Uh, So you're hanging. I'm just redirect. So funny for me in the e-copy. So this, when you get into all of this, it has the picture of uh, the lithograph, the old Kentucky home far away. Courier and Eves restored the dialect that whites assigned to black American speech, but the Foster had stripped from his 1853 uh, uh, melody. Uh, That's the picture uh, with the old Negro, uh, bald, gray hair, emasculated, as it were, in stripes. He almost looks like he's got his prison uh, outfit on. Anyway, but you write, Bingham was etched into stone above the door above a three-story brick classroom building that anchored a high-traffic corner of UNC's quadrangle. I was aware of my North Carolina forebears who for multiple generations ran a school that served as a feeder for the state university, but I wasn't prepared to see the name enshrined on campus and it made me more anxious than proud. Bingham Hall threatened to out me before my peers. I worried about being viewed as a legacy and less qualified than they were for my slot in the program. Like so many privileged white women that were again before me, I feared losing status and the illusion that my status was all my own making. I might have worried about quite different things had I understood, understood whom the building honored and the legacy of white supremacy contained in it now that's pretty uh explicit more so than i expect for many other folks uh hmm should i give them hmm yeah i'll stop there um that right there i thought was fascinating for many reasons because you go on to give uh more detail about your white family members and the ways that they practiced white supremacy racism very detailed uh and how that impacts your understanding of being a white woman um hmm did you i guess i'll start this that did so did that did anyone at any point while you're hanging out chapel hill did anyone hey so we got bingham hall hmm do you (laughs) did anyone ever bring that up while you were hanging out there i really you know i i imagine um Somebody must have in front of me. I'm sure they did not in front of me, but they must have in front of me at some point, and I probably blocked it out at the time because I was literally a walking, like, stick of anxiety. I don't know how to to explain it, but that's – I really dug in in that paragraph to, you know, the kind of uh, privilege uh, and, 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 like, fear that – that I walked around with at the same time. Um, and 
I've been working directly to get that name removed from that building. It's, uh, as you can imagine, with an institution like that, where Silent Sam has been really clung to so hard, it's been a long, long process. But I have told them that I will pay to have that removed and whatever name is selected to take its place um, put up uh, instead. Hmm. They got a lot of buildings uh, around UNC, and my favorite is South Carolina. But my favorite is the Pitchfork, Ben Tillman, where got all kinds of statues and monuments and buildings and such, and all hanging out. I'm, I've said for years I'm a big fan of keeping all of these names the same, like keep singing my mm-hmm. old Kentucky home and all that stuff until this system has been replaced. Let's everyone be very informed about where we are we're still on the plantation let's hear dixie play it every day let's hear my old kentucky home play it every day get the negro over keep darkies in the song all of that bingham keep it up all of them i think woodruff hall is another keep it all up ben tillman keep it all up don't change anything confederate flag keep it up just as reminders because you said before lots of people like to deny that there is a problem Dixie one more time. That way everybody can be very informed about uh, what's happening. Uh, and even now with that context where she said, hey, let's let's change it. I'll pay for it. Use some of my white woman power to get this done. Who is Bingham Hall? She says teaching school by day. Robert Hall Bingham was also riding out at night, assaulting and intimidating freedmen and white Americans who sympathized with them. Couldn't have been many of them. Only in my 40s and only because I was researching a biography of another forebear did I learn the story. His son proudly there's that word again told hundreds of times. His earliest memory in quote was of clutching my mother's skirt in terror at a hooded apparition and having my father raise his mask to relieve me state authorities accused the ex-confederate Bingham of Ku Klux Klan vigilantism in the 1860s but before he was held to justice anti-reconstruction white redeemer democrats took power in the state capital year in year out he educated young men in Latin and white supremacy blunt love it teaching them to honor the lost cause and uphold the racial order his violence helped establish he loved his alma mater too returning to campus often for reunions and later helped secure for the university its largest endowment gift this was the man bingham hall honored Robert Nevin wrote in the Atlantic Monthly promoting Foster's power of sentiment for interracial understanding while Robert Bingham marshaled white vigilante power. The truth was these were different means to the same end. Very well said, Dr. Bingham. Make it plain. That's what I said before, like privilege be uh, as accurate as possible much obliged Dr. Bingham let's see the uh, backup uh, Tom Fletcher make sure I get that in as well there's so many juicy tidbits here reading more important than watching television okay so 
even make oh my gosh look at this I can't believe this look at this okay the Negro Minstrel Show or excuse me the Negro Minstrel Tom Fletcher grew up in Portsmouth Ohio with a view across the river to Kentucky his father shoveled coal for steam powered boats and his mother cooked for the family of a local judge as a treat his mother's employers took young Fletcher with them to see a touring Tom show a few performers with bit parts looked like him and Fletcher decided then that he too would be a showman the showman and the slave he learned to sing my old Kentucky home and oh Susanna flyers excuse me oh Susanna practiced dance steps and volunteered to hand out flyers whenever a minstrel show came through town his father idolized Sam Lucas, a black singer, composer, and actor who toured with Hire's sister in Out of Bondage and became the first person of his race to play Uncle Tom on stage. I'm just skipping down a little bit. Tom Fletcher wanted safer. Oh, I can't skip that. That's so. It's got to go back. Uh, out of Bondage, first to play Uncle Tom on stage. At 15, Tom joined Howard's novelty colored minstrels as a drummer blacking up for nightly shows with 10 or 12 fellow players in a small Ohio, Kentucky, and Indiana towns. He recalled suffering from cold and the shadow of threat. The local people were very tough on us. Black residents of these areas knew their place and the troop regularly passed road signs directed at people of his complexion warning read and run just from sundown town James Lowen's book we read in the book club his version of that sign is read nigger and run and if you can't read run that was on billboards Whites only town, no Negras allowed. Continuing, the entertainers were permitted entry, but audiences who paid to see the shows, foster songs were staples, taunted them with slurs. It was the price to pay to send his mother five dollars a week. Tom Fletcher wanted safer, better paying work and more creative license. But with the exception of the considerably more respectable higher sisters, the traveling menstrual acts of the 1880s demanded the same degrading role 10 or 12 poorly, play, poorly paid black men under a white manager, Harlem Globetrotters. The range of artistic expression was so narrow, Fletcher later remembered it could come down to the size and shape of a minstrel's exaggerated makeup mouth it therefore seemed like a step forward when the hires sisters black stage manager Billy McLean envisioned a bigger entertainment that would permit dozens of singers dancers and musicians to showcase their abilities I thought this was staggering for so many reasons just <laughs> which you just being forced this is about the best that you can hope for under these conditions. I'd never heard of uh, Tom. Fletcher. I'd never heard of a lot of these uh, folks until I read the book, but I'd never heard of uh, Tom Fletcher and some of these other folks and just what they, I can't even imagine uh, what they would have endured. They could have been killed. Like that's what I'm reading from what you just wrote. Like if they got sundown towns, 
read nigger and run nigger do this they're yelling at them and taunt that they could have been killed like just trying to get in one of these towns oops we ran out of gas oops bumped into the wrong white per- anything like all just to go sing oh Susanna and uh, I mean man I don't even know how to yeah, yeah. what's some some seriously painful history and uh, I was not very familiar with this era either and I think there's a reason it's just it's incredibly uh, it's, it's horrific um, and it's you know the time when black Americans were had so much hope and were working ex- so exceedingly hard to in any way they could to um, you know both you know make a living and be respectable and it was you know an impossible task in a nation that was already deciding that a multiracial democracy was is not you know not not happening um but tom fletcher wrote uh, i was quoting from his memoir which has been mined beautifully by many historians um we wish there were more like him but it's he, he was a leader in the black uh uh, musicians union or, or actors union I guess he was more of a uh, singer but um, but he ended up in New York City and was a real um, mentor to many 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 other performers and that he reflected on his whole career this way as you know provides a window into um, the history that you you know this era that you just described from the 1880s and um, 1870s really in the 80s uh, and into the 1890s in this country. And Billy McLean, he mentioned at the end, just threw up his hands and said, I got to get out of this country and ended up taking his wife and family and going to Australia. Mm, mm, mm. Joe Lewis. He said, I, I can't stand, you know, working for people who are telling me what I have to do. Mm. Joe White Lewis. People. White people. To be White in. people. I love it. <laughs> Joe Lewis two times you can run but you can't hide Australia had a whites only policy and I am you already mentioned they got my old Kentucky home over there as well and we are they got a whole documentary about black soldiers during World War II going over there and getting lynched for looking at a white woman so as Joe Lewis you can run but you can't hide from the system of white supremacy now I can get delectable Negro I can get it so many different ways I said I can just table that I can come back to it labor later get it two ways here so i'm skipping this is now chapter three the little cabin floor uh talking about the what drove uh billy mclean to australia black people had almost no access to leadership roles in show business or anywhere else billy hired nearly a hundred black performers the call went out from the buckingham clever colored talent wanted quick ladies and gents of experience refinement and culture in cakewalking, shouting, singing, plantation melodies, quadrilles, wing, reel, and buck dancing were invited to apply. Also, all sports of the ancient and modern Africans, colored orchestra, etc., telegraph at once. The ad did not mention that to cater to White's fascination with slavery days, these experienced dancers and singers would be required to pick real cotton in the ersatz field that served as the show's visual anchor indeed the scripted elements of the south before the war 
was as racially demeaning as any menstrual show, indicating how painfully limited McLean's influence was over the content. One scene that passed for slapstick called for a steamboat named the Robert E. Lee to dock at a levee where resting stevedores were pricked in the feet with needles or prodded with hot irons. Can you smell him cooking? One character asked. Such was the context for the Piccaninny Chorus performance of My Old Kentucky Home in Under a Southern Sky, a skit within the 1892 show. This is what they call the so-called nadir in this part of the world with regards to white supremacy racism. So I said, delectable Negro, can you smell him cooking? This is the entertainment where I said, it seems, dang, white people enjoy practicing racism, white supremacy. Get this one two ways. I'm going back. I love these anecdotes. We've heard this before. What does that mean even about what it means to be classified as white that we've heard this before? So previously, Dr. Bingham, she writes, while helping a close friend sort through her mother's condominium after she died, I was given a two-inch time-darkened alligator snatching a black toddler's backside between forays to staples for heavy-duty garbage bags, boxes, and packing materials. We talked about my recent research trip. Harvard University's Houghton Library holds an extensive archive called the American Menstrual Show Collection. Jesus Christ, if I get to Boston, I'm going. She guessed the alligator was a souvenir from a Florida vacation her mother took with her family in the 1940s. It's so horrible. My friend said, I obviously don't want it. I took the thing. We could fill a hundred museums with items long considered amusing or cute, even as they demeaned people, including children, to justify their subordination. I will stop there again we already heard this remember when we had the white historian Arkansas he said a random white woman called him and said oh my goodness my grandfather died we're going through the attic we found the box there is a mummified negro finger what what do we do he said they took it in for DNA testing and all the rest of it I said the delectable Negro human consumption and homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. So I got this two ways. Your incident, alligator backside. It's not even just the alligator chomping on the child, the backside of the child. Mm -hmm. We got it that way or we got the pricking them with the polls and the menstrual show, it both seems kind of like the same thing. Uh, how do you, and both of these are 
rife. You said we could fill museums. That's in fact, I had to highlight that because I've said the same thing. I wrote this exactly because I've seen this so many. There's another one on NPR. There's a white grandmother. She went through and said she played cards with her grandfather and won back when she was like eight. And he gave her her reward was a poster that you talk about for the lynching of a black male. And she saved it. So this is like a hundred years old. This just goes on as you, you can fill up museums. I process that not only delectable Negro, but I also process that white people can't be ignorant about white supremacy, racism, because that would mean I'm ignorant about my grandmother and my grandfather. Who was Bingham Hall named after? I don't know my relatives. Really? So we'll go two routes. So let's delectable Negro. Uh, it's not just they're chomping on the child. They're chomping on the child's backside. But it's chomping either way. They're eating the, the alligators, eating the child. That's widespread. We talked about that before. And then they're poking them with the irons and such. And you can smell them cooking. What is go- Why is that so widespread in white culture, you think? Either or. I mean, both of those examples are comic, you know, attempts at comedy about the actual, you know, physical, you know, slaughter of black people by white people or in the process of, you know, of slavery. So whether it's lynching and the cooking that happened uh, with black bodies during that or whether it is, um, you know, during slavery itself you know, the driving or, you know, know, abusing people to death. Those were realities that uh, I would say that white society and a racist society uh, had to find ways to um, turn into something that to diffuse the actual horror and tension that they contain. So these, whether they be, uh, I mean, I thought there's a whole, uh, genre of postcards of black children um, being threatened in some way or sexual and se- so sexually and in a somewhat sexualized way, whether it's by an alligator or someone walking by or, or you know, very small children being presented um, as, as sex objects or sexual, you know, sexually active, you know, uh, humans. And that, that again, is uh, con- they were, those were, supposedly cute postcards like Valentine's and jokes that, that were marketed to white people to uh, diffuse the actual uh, disallowing of black childhood. She said those postcards, black children being sexual, being sexually violated alligators or in some other way, I did mention Thomas Jefferson, Sally Hemings. I point that out consistently. This is a grown racist white man with a teen, a young teen. We're not even talking 18, 19, 17, 13. And this is presented as plantation romance. No, this is child rape, which was 
widespread on plantations. I suspect like Oxmoor in Tennessee and Monticello in Virginia, just pick the plantations. Brazil, pick the plantation. Most of the time, this is well done. Even Roots, they got the old belly warmer on the ship, and that's the sanitized version. They still give you that belly warmer, and it's a young black slave. Uh, the since we take that both ways. I said, you said diffusing tension. I'm just going by the evidence. It's also very widespread. You went with those postcards. It was very hard for the U.S. Postal Service to get white people to stop sending those postcards of black people being lynched. It took a lot of effort. This is documented that they had a really hard time with Oh, historian. She's not ignorant. That coupled with what you shared. Why would so many white people be holding on to mummified nigger parts? Got to keep a, a nigger male's testicles in a jar. Got to keep the lynching flyer for a hundred years got to keep the postcard of the alligator chomping on black child why would so many white people hold on to that as a keepsake if there was tension like if I felt some type of way like I've had this finger for 10 years I'm going to let that go they don't do that why would that that to me again suggest there's no and in fact when you try to get them to turn loose like maybe we don't need old nigger Jim here like, what oh we got it what are you doing maybe we don't need to say dark what what you wrote trying to confront these white people about racism can be dangerous might provoke a brawl <laughs> that to me doesn't suggest that there's t- the tension comes when you try to disrupt their connection to these relics to white supremacy racism am i am i being logical i mean i I do think there's that is true but um from what i understand about the uh and i'm not an expert on this maybe you have read more about this but the theories around comedy is that their comedy tends to go straight to parts of our uh, our society or our system or our beliefs or our practices that are um, that, where there is some sort of discomfort already, right? That's, that's the, and so that's what I was citing when I, you know, brought up these objects as possibly also at least, you know, having a, a, a cathartic as um, a horrendous word in the responses, but I, I do think that some white people, despite all the things going on, were feeling uh, a, an occasional human twang of maybe this uh, isn't good. And I'm not talking about, you know, saving. Maybe the reason it was closed up in a box in the attic is because somebody thought maybe this wasn't something to keep on the mantelpiece. But uh that I, I think those both are true that it is uh you know it has continued to satisfy uh despite and that there is tension when you confront it um but i also i think that both could be true does that make sense <laughs> both the you know that the tension is 
uh, or the, the comic, the operativeness of comedy in a brutalist system can uh, can can make sense as well as that it is um, something that is clung to because that helps enable the system to continue. Both both things enable the system to continue clinging overtly and also finding ways to laugh it off. The uh, fellow William Shakespeare is referenced in this here book. Uh, he is attributed with saying, in jest, there is truth uh, in a system that is dominated by deception, some of which we may have experienced lifetime this here evening. I think racist jokes consistently, that's one of the few times white people are honest with regards to racism white supremacy in fact i think that might be why there's some concealing about these racist jokes at least you don't do them publicly as frequently anymore but we'll ponder uh on that one uh you let's see this is oh that was so important as well trying to make sure i don't miss the important this is 279 i reckon from the uh E version of the text. Uh, I think. Make sure this is the one. Okay. Two. Yes, two seventy nine. Um, I'll get to the officialdom of the song. I did do my word count for people who followed our uh, book club and other programs that we've done reviews with authors and such. Uh, I will check just to see the frequency of different terms that are used in the book. Some of the words that I checked or in terms of frequency that stood out, uh, the term white supremacy was used 20 times. The term whiteness was used 11 times. I do discourage the use of that term. I think that's another one like privilege that does some pussyfooting, not being as accurate as we can be interesting. So even if we combine those two whiteness, Whiteness, white supremacy and whiteness combined 31 times the word progress 47 times which I found fascinating like dang wow. has there been that much progress for this word to dominate the, the word progress is in this book more than the word white supremacy more than double and it's even combining with whiteness it's in there more and then uh, for, I guess for my own purposes, uh, the word dignity is in here 10 times, which I also found kind of high. But you even seemed a little surprised. Has there been, I mean, progress in here 47 times? What do you think? I love that you checked that. <laughs> really, I'm going to go through and look at exactly the context that it's used in because I think that is fascinating. Um, I, I can't, obviously, I didn't count myself, so... I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, that's going to be an interesting one for me to check. I mean, I, I can imagine that, uh, you know, the fantasy of progress and the, uh, wishfulness around progress is the context of at least a number of those because that is a theme in the book. The sort of, uh, imagined, uh, liberal, you know, approach that, that, you know, progress is happening. Uh, on race and we're on the road to, um, you know, it's just a matter of time and, you know, as long as we're 
uh, as white people are polite and, you know, not uh, overtly doing things individually to black people, that that will, uh, things will take care of themselves, which was pretty much the mantra that I was brought up with um, from a liberal uh, white family in the media uh, and, and with a great deal of media power. Um, so that's one of the reckonings that I, you know, have felt like, you know, ignored systemic and the, you know, continued benefits that a systemic, a racially systemic, a race, systemically racist, um, system was conferring. And so progress is a very problematic term, um, for me, but, uh, but it, it really, I will, I look forward to, literally going through the word search and doing that. Hmm. Uh, oh, wowzers. Well, let's take one for context. When is progress made? Let's see. Uh, all right. So this is chapter four, the sun shines bright. Uh, the last page in the chapter. Uh, you write, this was by, this, uh, let me make sure we give the full, something far more profound than irony made it possible to say this. Uh, was it the certitude of racial superiority or the terror of confronting the truth that made victims out of enslavers yet said nothing of the millions robbed, tortured, raped, forcibly separated from loved ones and denied medical care for hundreds of years? Their suffering did not matter next to what whites experienced. This was by design, by intent, with the intentions implicit and explicit spread across generation, generations and millions of men, women and children spread as widely and ubiquitously as Foster's song with its shifting malleable lyrics taking up occupancy in individual and collective memories. Each generation has inherited a piece of this blindness and moral failure metaphor, though no, though nobody took me aside and explained slavery and Jim Crow and therefore the nature of my family legacy. I have like so many tried to do better and clung to the belief that I was doing better as a young person. I believed that the road to the level playing field metaphor was being paved with small adjustments and goodwill. Things were as the Beatles song said, getting better all the time. It's a deeply American impulse. This faith in natural progress, like so much that impulse does work to deflect attention from certain facts from other less progressive histories. It turns out that I was as ready to sing one song for the old Kentucky home as my great grandfather a hundred years before me. During his day, white men used gruesome methods of extra legal violence to murder hundreds of black citizens each year. During mine, police killed unarmed youths and our criminal justice system embraced the new Jim Crow metaphor, and she even goes into detail about Jim Crow at the beginning of this book, e, of mass incarceration, which has ravaged whole communities. We both found ways to excuse or live with those facts. So that's one bit of 
context for one of the progress usages in the book, which is interesting because with that context, I thought that was the whole point of Michelle Alexander's book, Cowbell. I thought that was the whole point of her book that we have not really made progress. She even, I think, pinpoints it at times that we had better or more intact families way back when as opposed to now. That's not progress. And even Brown B. Board of Education is mentioned here. My goodness, they have more reports than you want to read that there has been zero progress on so-called school desegregation, like zero. And even to put that into super context, so Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, Emmett Till has been lynched. White people have gone to the moon and we have made zero progress on so-called school integration. That's what I mean about That is staggering that in this book where they're going to play my old Kentucky home in a couple of days, progress is in here 47 times. White supremacy is in here 20 times. Hmm. Uh, Did you want to, you got context for that one? Did you, anything you wanted to add there or ponder? I I mean, I believe that the context is to question that myth of progress and to say that it is a deeply held article of civil religion in this country, whether it's racial progress or progress on all kinds of things. And you're absolutely right to, you know, cite something like school integration, which, you know, a dream of, you know, of many. Um, that has not only in itself, the integration part has not, you know, has not been achieved, but the, even, you know, in many ways of a progress on, you know, as we look at like, you know, family wealth or home ownership has been reversing. So I, I absolutely deeply mean to question that faith in in progress and I, I I hope that that is clear from that passage just for me the usage of the term even progressive whites that comes up in the book maybe we shouldn't have so much usage of terms like progress or even progressive white because we got privileged whites we got progressive whites we got everything but white people who practice racism which is the problem we are trying to deal with as opposed to all of this pussyfooting and minimizing and we've made progress no even that no we haven't according and you already know this according to all the metrics no we haven't we have a what I said in my definition we have a system where individuals classified as white are dedicated to white supremacy racism that's why we have not made progress. Things have just been camouflaged sometimes, and then sometimes they just come out and play my old Kentucky home, broad daylight, and, you know, you don't like it, well, get into the horses. Let's see. Uh, I do want to make sure I include Shirley Temple. We did go a little bit over, but hopefully if you can just be patient so I can get my last few uh, questions in that are important about the uh, text uh, one of them relating back to delectable Negro. These are, are super quick. I guess one, what the term spade work, what does that, what does that mean? Uh, Dr. Bingham spade work. 
It means uh, the uh, labor to dig underneath something. Labor to dig underneath something. Okay. Um, for context, for folks who don't know, who haven't heard that word before, it's used in the text only one time. Um, but it's used in the text in chapter uh, six. Uh, you're talking about some of the background of how this song came together and them lying, basically, which is a, so important in this book, lying uh, about this song and that, oh, he came to Kentucky and wrote this song. And even when you get presented with the truth, as there's so much vested in this song. We're going to lie. White people, we're going to lie and stick to the lie. He came here and he wrote the song and hung out with the slaves. And, oh, it's amazing. And that Stephen Foster is such an American hero. Uh, so in that context, he gives more of the details about all this and how it's a lie. And this guy was born in Pittsburgh and whatever. Uh, so she writes specifically a scrapbook of clippings she had compiled over the years, merely repeated the familiar claims a few weeks after their meetings. Madge felt grateful that in spite of the uncertainty, Alan Allison had not lost interest in the old house and its owners. Allison did some spade work of his own. He interviewed other barristers and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and I saw that. And I thought, wow. Hmm. And she just gave it digging, digging underneath. Was that it? Digging underneath uh, a structure mm-hmm. or something for something that's been de- uh, buried. I looked it up. Spade work, routine or difficult preparatory work and you're a historian do you know uh, black people along with coon and negro spade is also a slur that we use for black people I am aware of that I thought you would be uh, and I said hmm that's so even the the etymology of such a term I can see how the spade were who are the people that are going to have to do the digging underneath the structure to do some unearth oh yes who are the people that are going to have to do the routine or difficult prepared? Oh, yes. The spades. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even the the history. Yeah, I of, never thought of that. That's a, that, you think of a chain gang, right? Right. Mm-hmm, off. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's right in the language word you because there's a uh, niggling is another one. I said, oh, wow, they got it right there. It's like an annoying task that you don't want to like. Ah, so, the language, it's right there and telling you what this is all about. Incidentally, that would be a word that I would discourage using, spade work, because that's once again associating vile tasks or vile things with black people who are also vile. Uh, and these are the folks who are supposed to do this work, the niggers, the spades. Um, the term militant, what do you mean when you use the term militant? Uh committed, um, organized um, as part of a group to uh, pursue a goal and having the, um, I guess I would say, the the purpose, you know, absolutely shared and uh, an organized uh, plan for pursuing that that everyone adheres to. Okay. Focused organized, having a plan that everyone adheres to, we're focused in order to accomplish that objective. Militant also only used in this text one time. Uh, I pay attention to that word consistently. Um, It's one usage pops up chapter nine. Uh, You write uh, given, just make sure I get the full context black power sounded and sometimes looked 
militant at Cornell in early 1969. Students armed with rifles faced off with university leaders and police in California. The Black Panther Party established parallel social services to liberate people with governmental institutions infused with white supremacy. Full paragraph. It's particularly given the definition that you just provided. That's how it stands out. That's one of those. In fact, I hadn't thought of it before, but particularly because there have been so many times when I have been branded militant. We (laughs) are in a system snickering, more inappropriate snickering, because I don't think there's anything Chris Rock or minstrelly about being called a militant Negro. Sometimes that's ground for you being killed. Um, But Medgar Evers. Uh, I should have picked Muhammad Ali or I could have picked a bunch of militant Negroes. Anywho, um, I do not ever hear. We are in a whole book where she talks about the Nadir reconstruction where people like her white grandfather went around and terrorized black people with guns. They're not described as militant. Most of the time, they're not even called terrorists or criminals. In fact, He's got a hall named after him at North Carolina, Chapel Hill. That's Mike Jordan's alma mater. I am a militant in this text. The Black Panther Party. Militant. Not all of these armed white. In fact, with the definition that she gave being organized, focused, committed to a man. The white people at Churchill Downs are militant. We're going to (laughs) have more chuckling because I'm being serious. Isn't that militant according to the definition that you gave? I mean, I think it's a great point. I think that's an awesome point. I think they are militant. The white people, Adolf Rupp, militant white supremacists. We are not going to have niggers on this year basketball court. And they name the arena after Anthony Davis won a national championship at the University of Kentucky Lexington at Rupp Arena, where a militant racist said, we don't even want Anthony Davis. We don't even want De'Aaron Fox. We don't even want Malik Monk. We want Jerry West. White players only. None of them get described as militant, much less racist, but old Gusty and the Black Panther. Even she mentioned some of these militant Negroes on the very next page from where the Black Panther Party and these other folks are labeled militant we see a black male with an afro fist in the air. He has a whole bunch of armed white enforcement officials around him. Now, that would be another one. Now, in this picture, label the militant. Excellent. I think we've got uh, a very clear picture of, of you, know, par- you know, parallel militancies. For sure. If not, you know, I mean, I think that's a beautiful point. I love that you call that word out. I think it's a good one to be absolutely, you know, uh, aware of. Mm. Uh, And it's not parallel. I just want to make that clear. If it was parallel, maybe this problem would have been solved a long time ago. At least maybe we wouldn't have... uh, my old Kentucky home playing at the Derby in a few days. It's not parallel at all. A lot of times we're talking a black person with a BB gun or no gun at all. Sometimes it'll be a Tamir Rice type situation or Breonna Taylor type situation. And you got white people with tanks and a whole armed guard outside. That's not parallel force at all. That's the whole problem that we're talking about, a power imbalance 
individuals classified as white. Um, what, man, I I have to get in. Let me see. What what do I think is most important to make sure I don't uh, I don't miss. 421 things that I make sure I don't miss 421 uh, there are a lot of metaphors in this text and most of the time like I said when white people use metaphors I think it's ends up being ways to be deceptive not be truthful about white supremacy or racism uh, this is in the book a little bit later on chapter 9 they sing no more you write the Stephen Foster story this is they got plays and movies <laughs> this about this lie about this white guy who made this song the Stephen Foster story and my old Kentucky home as both a song and a place succeeded because so many white Americans yearned as I did for exoneration. Wow. And this goes into roots when it played the first time through in uh, the 1970s. Uh, Alex Haley, what uh, what do you mean? White Americans like you yearn for exoneration. What does that mean exactly? I mean, I, I think it's a, a, a condition of knowing that there are deep wrongs that are, you know, have shaped my family, have shaped uh, my position from the beginning, um, that, you know, create a sense of, you know, w- wishing that one were not complicit. And that's it, it's a fantasy of, you know, wanting to wish that were not true. And so exoneration would take that away. But I mean, that's a, I say that in a very self-aware, I hope, I mean, a relatively self-aware way that, that, that wish is, is a distraction. It's a fantasy. It's a, a completely a distraction from the work that, needs to be done day in and day out and that is the you know the road that that we have so um i mentioned it because i want to acknowledge that it is a uh, a feeling that i and i'm pretty sure a lot of other people have had and that it's not a productive one a very unproductive one Hmm. I don't I remembered earlier you said that you acknowledge there are a lot of individuals classified as white who don't feel there's anything to be pained about at all. In fact, I get Bill Russell again. He wrote in his memoir. He said he was stunned. He went to the library in California and they said, hey, really, you niggers, slavery is the best thing that ever happened to you, black brothers and sisters. I mean, really, you want to be stuck in Africa? some primitive jungle in a hut I mean really you ought to be thankful that we scooped you up and shackled you and what have you best thing that ever happened to you and it's uh, excuse me individuals classified as white who think that way right now uh, some of that's even valorized and gone with the wind and all the rest they don't the exoneration what are you talking about <laughs> like we didn't even we didn't even do it. you even said it multiple ways the white people who come from Canada they had slavery there. They certainly got white supremacy racism there, but they had slavery there too. But a white person coming from Canada, <laughs> exoneration. I mean, what are you talking about? I didn't even do anything. Canada, man. Maple Leafs. I do hockey. What are you talking about? I grew up in Toronto. They had slavery in Canada too. But yeah, I see lots of white people who are not about exoneration or, like I said, those racist jokes. 
that right there alone tells me you do not feel bad about this. You wouldn't be searching. They searched the Lakers equal to racist jokes. That right there, just it, it greatly wounds the logic of an argument about pained white people. Stop snickering about coons and President Obama and a lot of them are violent and sexualized too, like they're having fun being violent against black people. That, uh, yeah. uh, there are people did dial in with questions. Let's see if folks can be efficient and get to their question. Do you have time to maybe do one question uh, from some of the folks who dialed in? They can be quick, efficient, get right to what they want to ask Dr. Bingham. Yeah, I have like three more minutes till okay. 1020 if that's uh, so we can get a question and that'd be great. Great. Let's see how quickly we can proceed. Uh, last four digits, 0356. 0356. Did you have a question for Dr. Bingham? Can I hear? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus. I'm greeting to yourself, uh, the calls and listeners. Thank you, Dr. B- uh, Dr. Bingham. Let's have um, just one uh, question for you. Um, why do individuals classified as white enjoy media, entertainment, etc., that depicts non-white as victims of terror, abuse, and/or murder? Thank you. I'm you up. Um, can I? Can you re- repeat the question for me, Gus? Just to make sure I heard him right. If I heard him correctly, he said, why do white people enjoy entertainment uh, where black people are going to be abused, mistreated, hurt in some manner, sexually violated? Was that your uh, question, sir? Yes, sir. Thank you, Gus. Okay. Yeah. That's a a great question, and it goes directly to this uh, song, because in this song... Uh, a black family is violated, a black man is sent to die, um, and white people have been enjoying that song for 170 plus years. And I, to explain exactly why, I, the reason I wrote that book, the book, to try to uh, understand and not excuse it, but understand how this, how this, you know, can be and try to alert people to that I don't think they they don't really know that that's what they're doing but your but your caller is pointing out that there are plenty of entertainments that feature uh, abuse and um, violence toward black people and I I don't have the answer to his question but I do think this song is part of that story see if we can sneak in another question uh our caller uh 2979 2979 did you have a question for dr bingham yes can i be heard yes sir greetings gus uh to the callers listeners and to the guest dr bingham thank you for spending some of your time i guess uh, i'm only allowed one question or can i ask two uh, just one because she's on short time now. Okay, great. Uh, so, I'll, my my question is, you know, based on the conversation tonight, I I feel that I'll just get straight to the question. Um, 
in your in your view, who is responsible for creating, implementing, expanding, maintaining, and refining the system of racism, white supremacy? White people or non-white people? Uh, great question. I'm very succinct. <laughs> um, I think there's no doubt that white people are created and have done almost the entirety of maintaining it. And even if there's any other um, group involved, it's because of the, the form and, uh, you know, the architecture of a system that requires and expects um, to preserve that power. So that's been the way that American entertainment uh, has, has worked. And, you know, my old Kentucky home is, a, is, is one. This nation, but even beyond and how it's been our signature. Thank you. I totally agree. Um, yeah, thank you. That's all I have. Signature, that word again. There we go. Uh, before we let you go, Dr. Bingham, uh, is it accurate to say you as a trained historian uh, by profession and training, uh, you are informed about racism, white supremacy? Is that true? I hope I am, but I, you know, I'm always learning. And tonight has been a really, um, really interesting to hear the way you're, you know, you're extremely good close reading of the text and I so appreciate that um, and I really appreciate the way you have um, pushed me at times too on language and framing um, that that you consider you know problematic and and harmful so I have really uh, gotten a lot out of this and I hope um, I hope you have too but I wrote this book for people who were less informed than you and me um, because I just feel like there's a lot of that out there. And most, most of those people um, in my audience are, are white people. Um, and that's where the greatest lack of informing being informed seems to me to lie. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, you think white people, are more informed about racism, white supremacy, or the other way around in terms of what racism is and how it works? Individuals classified as white, do you think they're more informed or do you think non-white people are more informed? I would say non-white people are more informed. Hmm. Okay. Even got our overtime question in. Uh, the book that we have been chatting it up about, uh, My Old Kentucky Home, which I cannot emphasize enough, we did not get here through Brianna Taylor, which we totally could have the Kentucky Derby, anything about racism in the state of Kentucky. Uh, I'm not uh, a closet uh, University of Kentucky Wildcats basketball fan cheering. Anthony. Nope. We got here from Brazil. And again, they didn't even have footnotes. If they had enough detail to show, oh, we know what my old Kentucky home is in South America in 1947 no netflix needed either stunning again my old kentucky home the astonishing life and reckoning of an iconic american song dr emily bingham from the book privileged white woman 
could be more accurate, but I learned a ton. Thank you so much for hanging out with us this Monday evening. Dr. Bingham, uh, I will keep an eye out for future work, and uh, thank you again. Let me know if you write some more things on racism, white supremacy. We would love to check it out. Thank you, Gus. You have a good night. Much obliged. Context of white supremacy. Ah, Dr. Emily Bingham, Kentucky. I can't believe there was a time not that long ago, it seems, someone we had a listener literally dial in and say hey Gus do you know about I don't know if it was they were looking for like books movies took a deliberate pause let the plane get a little bit further away they have so much overhead activity here uh, great Seattle area anyway we're not even close to the airport anyway um, but they said, Gus, do you know about information in Kentucky? And at that time, I really didn't. I think I, Muhammad Ali, I, I, this was be- way before, years before Breonna Taylor. So Muhammad Ali, I could say like, man, at this point, whew, so you get this book, Muhammad Ali, go back and Braden, Dr. Catherine Fossil, white woman, suspected racist. Oh, you can even you can listen to that program and hear the exchange where Ann Braden asked Dr. Martin Luther King to help she and her husband because white people were fussing them with them about how they were behaving as white men and women. And we talked about that uh, with Dr. Fosso. That's way back 2014. But wow, we have done so even in the book club. We did Blood Brothers, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, that book also biography talks about his upbringing Cassius Clay at the time in Kentucky so man we've done so much more study uh, on lots of things but Kentucky in particular over that even Bill Russell ah, just to get that I can't emphasize that enough I brought that up there were a few other things that I would have touched on but I thought that was so important in terms of those omissions I suspect, and particularly younger people, if they have been watching Kentucky basketball and they, Malik Monk, you know, they got all these black players on the team. Now they're, you know, infamous for having tons of super talented black players and winning national championships and all the rest of it. You know, they're infamous for that. You would not think, wow, this school was bastion of white supremacy where they bragged about we're not going to have Negro basketball players. That should have been included. Like we could trim some fat in other places and just make sure we get one paragraph in. And the same thing with Corbin, Kentucky. It is disgraceful if there are at least 260 white supremacist purges of black citizens that we only know Tulsa Rosewood. And that's it. That is disgraceful. We had Cameron McWhorter on the program. His book, uh, The Red Summer, 1919, talks about many of the other incidents where this sort of thing happened. Arkansas, uh, as I mentioned, D.C., even places in the north that we wouldn't think of. We had E.R. Bills on the program. He uh, program back in 2015. Uh, we talked about Slocum, Texas, where the same thing happened. Kill all the black people, drive them out of town. Everybody gets to, oh, pretend this didn't happen. And then the people who have the information about this, for the most part, classified as white. E.R. Bills himself, white man. Patrick Phillips, blood at the root. That's Forsyth, Georgia. Same thing. 
the white people proud. They bragged about this. But that sort of thing is made, particularly from a historian, because this happens so frequently. That's how you end up with people being totally ignorant about, dang, is that many layers of white supremacy racism to all of this? Yes. And even those purges, the economic impact of having all that loss of property, land, housing, lives, disruption of family, even when people didn't get killed, but they got dispersed. So you end up in Illinois. I end up in Pennsylvania. All of that disruption. Maybe we reunite at some point. Maybe we don't. You don't have, you know, we can't hop on TikTok and Twitter and we can, oh, okay, we'll wind it. Eh. All of that to be, and again, the people who are ignorant about this, in my experience, they are the non white. Hey, we even got a mention in this book of the economic crisis. It was really quick, but they were talking to a black realtor. Uh, I'll see if I can read it, but we just had on the program, I can give two quick just for the context of us reading all this information at this moment. Uh, we just had Dr. Douglas Massey on the program who said black racism, and that's what we started at today, black racism. Dar- uh, Dorothy Bullitt, <laughs> and that she didn't think that Kentucky Plantation was racist. She was experiencing black racism here in Seattle, Washington, no less the gall. Anyway, uh, but we just had him talking about black racism. Come back with that today. And on that same program, Douglas Massey, he talked about the economic uh, crisis 2008 that came up in this book. But he talked about it and he provided the detail he oh man I forgot she stayed on the plantation too but anyway uh, when Douglas Massey when he mentioned the financial crisis it was with the information white bankers went after in a predatory manner they targeted financially terrorized black potential home buyers getting them all these subprime loans and what he said we talked about he said black people are stupid they're unintelligent they're easy dupes and Douglas Massey is a white man who shared that information with us just last week found it so here it comes up she writes uh Throughout his formative years, the NAACP had fought the word darkies in this song about Kentucky, assuming that if white people accorded black Americans respect in public spaces and schools and over airwaves, something like tolerance would follow a world where content of one's character would trump the color of one's skin. Dr. King Hines was proud to have dealt with the slur. What happened to be its official death blow in Kentucky? But. As a real estate agent in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis over mortgage-backed securities, he fully understood that the work to root out inequity was far from done. To him, the revised, my old Kentucky home seemed all right. I think he said reflecting, it's a pretty song. Even that right there. Like, what? there's so much to just not even have that detail that, oh yes, this financial crisis where tons of black so-called progress was 
wiped out, yet to be recovered, and the double whammy, many individuals classified as white turned around and blamed black people, saying, see, see, we told you, these no-count, irresponsible, shiftless niggers shouldn't have let them get a house in the first place. No-count darkies should have been happy back plantation. See, told you. That right there, important. Uh, I submit non-white people are not uh, experts on this sort of information. I submit this sort of information is helpful in understanding what it means to be white in so many different ways. My goodness. In fact, even if I would had more time, I would have asked uh, a few more questions to get at that uh, specifically. But even just the writing alone, when she talks about the dedication to this song right beneath where they talk about black people being militant had to bring that out she writes uh, and this is black people they turned around and said the darkies are not happy that's the line she's talking about she says with this line Hudson black male hoped to explode the central image that Foster's song had embedded in American thought that even black Americans missed the days of slavery the melody had brought genuine pleasure to generations of Americans it had been marketed and sold and held up as a crowning example of the nation's music so much so that as the thoroughbreds came onto the track at Churchill Downs an almost exclusively white crowd could rise as one and woozily, patriotically, wistfully, reverently honor it as they honor the star-spangled banner, which also has comments about darkies and what have you that's been sanitized. Hudson and his fellow demonstrators wished Churchill Downs to acknowledge that it had been sacralizing a song about slavery for decades in sound and now print. They raised their complaints against a near monolith of white certainty about the century-old song's history and meanings. They were almost entirely ignored. Fletcher Hodge, Hodges, still guiding the Lilly Collection to the University of Pittsburgh, was asked about the anthem, anthem's antiquated lyrics. Hodges mockingly suggested that in these days of soul, Churchill Downs might substitute brothers. For the offending D word. That seems acceptable. See that that's why I said don't call me brother. Hope that wasn't lost on people. This white man at the Kentucky Derby saying well since they don't want us to say darkies. How about we switch it up and say the brothers were gay. It's alright to call them brothers now isn't it? They say there is no black monolith. That's almost a cliche, right? You got to say that all black people aren't alike and don't think alike and we're not all as one. You got these old fake counterfeit black people too, right? That aren't even born in the U.S., right? All that white monolith about this song, about the system of white supremacy, racism too. And the word count. Oh, I learned so much reading this book. Uh, progress to be in this book 47. I say that consistently. That is nonsense. As opposed to talking about progress, it should just be replace the system of white supremacy with justice. It's not about progress. We lynched 50 niggers last year. We locked up 800 niggers last year. This year we've only locked up 750, so we've made some progress. That is retarded. Replace white supremacy with justice, and it is very different to have people like myself victims believing in so-called progress as opposed to thinking 
white people are dedicated to white supremacy racism that's why these white people bark at that definition they want us to think white people are dumb they're ignorant they don't know they need books like this they need niggers like I don't know whoever you think to go out and educate white people so they'll stop practicing racism that's not what this is this is white monolithic dedication to white supremacy racism I think I could have got her to admit to being a racist white supremacist if I had asked I was just trying to get to so many things I didn't realize I was going to have so many notes uh, to bring out with this program even the term like spade work I get to the folks who dialed in she can share your thoughts even a term like that reveals the white supremacy racism because buddy I guarantee you a term like spade work is an academic term you go out and just ask people on the street Leroy do you know what spade work is see what they say ask your family members have you heard the term spade work do you know what it means or niggling that one popped up in the book club I wanted to say might even more than once but I know it's in George Orwell's 1984 that right there tells me a whole lot about what it means to be uh, what it means to be classified as black. In fact, they have another one. They they have an expression like if you have uh, an abundance of something. Uh, let's say I got a crop of Brussels sprouts, and the Brussels sprout a Brussels sprouts market is great. They say, "Oh my goodness, that old Gusty he got Brussels sprouts in spades," meaning you got. Like Oxmoor, you got hundreds of niggers. Oh my goodness, I'm just <laughs> my cup runneth over with niggers. That right there tells me a whole lot. And about who is confused. I'm submitting you go and you talk to Leroy, Jamal, you. I'm talking to people that are listening right now. How many of you all knew the word spade work? That's what I mean about hey, who is more important? Now she can do all that about oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. Remember you use the term and knew what it meant she didn't need an explanation and knew that spade is a slur for black people like coon I even thought that was significant all of the chuckling throughout and the reluctance I didn't ask for a judgment I don't even make a judgment about non-white people who call other black people coons even though I don't think it's constructive that's my view but I don't make a judgment. You don't hear me on here calling other non-white people names or even mentioning folks. Coon this and coon that and coon this. I just asked for you are a white historian, privileged white woman. All coons look alike to me. That's a platinum hit. What do you make of that? Black people now, coon, 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 can't turn loose of it. Where did we get this from? That's another one. Go ask Leroy, have you heard of All Coons Look Alike to Me? The only other book that I'm aware of that I've read that mentions that song might give more insight as to why we so love calling black people coons. Also written by a white man, Dr. Kenneth O'Reilly. And in fact, what book is it? That's not in Nixon's Piano, which is all about minstrel shows and racism in the White House. All Coons Look Alike to Me is in racial matters the FBI's secret file on black America that's the book 
that mentions all coons look alike to me. That's a sort of, I think we should listen to that song every day because I've heard, I've had non-white people mention me by name. I don't agree with that old Gus T. We got to call black people a coon. We got to. That's how we're going to solve this problem. Black people have been called coons longer than anyone here has been alive. Longer than anyone here, grandparents have been alive. What has it helped us solve? Where did we even get this term from? Why do we have such an affinity for this term? Stupid, Mr. Fuller says. We heard that last week. We are stupid. No name calling. Affirmative action was mentioned in this book. I was going to get to that too. And Walt Whitman. Oh, I get into that. I missed. She mentions Walt Whitman. I was going to get to that if I had time. Uh, we talked about him before on the program. Dr. Timothy McNair was with us way back when. Walt Whitman is a part of Breaking Bad. He's referenced in this book as a good white man. Walt Whitman could not stand Negroes and detested that slavery had ended, which was the case for many, many white people, even many of the so-called well-meaning so-called progressive white people. Uh, she also mentions Frederick Douglass, and she gives the exact logic white people at Churchill Downs recently like after the murder of Breonna Taylor as a part of their justification for why they need to continue playing this minstrel minstrel song my old Kentucky home they cited Frederick Douglass been dead for more than a century Frederick Douglass cowbell and him saying all these years ago Hey, maybe we could use this song to help fight against racism. See, see, Frederick Douglass realized the beauty and the possibilities of racial harmony and us transcending the vestiges of Jim Crow and slavery. And Frederick understood if we could just come together and rant. See, she pointed out Frederick Douglass spent his whole life as best he could working against white supremacy racism. It is totally incorrect act of white supremacy deliberately so to go get what I say a dead negro to enforce some point uh, something that is in error incorrect illogical but Frederick Douglass said this what do you mean you're not going to dispute the great Frederick Douglass you're not going to dispute the great James Baldwin you're not going to dispute the great Franz Fanon they're all generally someone a dead black person who cannot speak of you have taken my work out of context or I changed my mind I was wrong on that one not even possible because they're you know they're gone so we just have to do well Frederick Douglass did that maybe I need to reconsider if Frederick thought you know my old Kentucky is good enough for Frederick Douglass good enough for me and they made general just like Dixie Dick Gregory was on this program he hates my guts the cow's guts God bless the dead but Dick Gregory was on this program he said they had to sing Dixie in school they had to sing this song in school. Mr. Fuller said the same thing. They had to sing these goofy menstrual songs. That's another one to think about. How did we end up saying coon this and coon that and coon this and coon that? Where did we? Oh, dang. Our grandparents and or great grandparents and or great 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 grandparents and aunts and uncles had to sing my old Kentucky home. Oh. Mm. I see. I see better context for why we behave as such. Anyway, 
just some of the things that stood out why I thought this was and number one this is 1A 1B is Wednesday oh I can't believe it we've been sabotaged for 14 years I would tell you who's coming on Wednesday but people go and contact the guests and sabotage us one of the most hated Negroes in the world so we'll be I like white guests only this is 1A same subject matter now we can be more specific and just get to Kentucky Derby all those horses that's just another aspect of white supremacy racism 1A 1B again Muhammad Ali was mentioned today I just mentioned the Boston Tar Baby Sam Linkford that is Sunday so we should be here every day this week except tomorrow Wednesday Thursday Friday Saturday Sunday bang tune in same time every day 8 p.m. Eastern 5 p.m. Pacific and I guess if I get one more our timing is so amazing with all of this we just had Dr. Thomas Oates on the program we talked about the NCAA championship women's LSU Iowa the racism with all of that Angel Reese remember all of that during that program we talked about the song one shining moment on that program we said, dang, white people got upset because they changed the song. We got to have Luther Vandross singing One Shining Moment. I went back in preparing for the program today. I went to check the University of Kentucky. They've won, now that they got black athletes, they've won lots of NCAA basketball championships. So you can go back 1996. You can hear the University of Kentucky national champions men's team One Shining Moment sung by the crooning Teddy P, South Carolina native, just like Ben Tillman. Then you can hear the team, Los Angeles Lakers, great Anthony Davis, 2012 NCAA national champions. Their one shining moment with Luther Vandross. And we just talked about, dang, why would white people have an affinity for a song sung by a gay black male at a basketball game? Why would that? Oh, put that in context of what we heard today. And on that very program, I said, Dr. Oates, can you think of another song that white people insist? We got to have this song at this event because they don't have a song that is required at the Super Bowl. To my knowledge, required at the World Series, required at the NBA Finals. He said, oh, yeah, I can think of another one. The Kentucky Derby, they require my old Kentucky home. Now, what do those songs have in common? One shining moment, gotta be sung by gay Luther Vandross, victim of white supremacy, black male. My old Kentucky home, where one of the lines is where the darkies are gay. Where the darkies are gay that is talked about in the book that transition to when that became something to giggle about and neutered effeminate black males is talked about in this book and how that is also comforting to individuals classified as white and specifically with this song they can't just have the song it's even better to get a neutered eunuch black male frequently who's old bald 
gray-haired, sexually impotent so he can't rape a white woman with a banjo and no shoes looking ragged and toothless. Come out here and sing for us, old Black Jim. Why is that comforting to white people? Hmm. Let's see. Uh, Folks had thoughts that they wanted to share what they heard from Dr. Emily Bingham uh, should be with us. We'll nab the folks who didn't get to ask their question. I had so much material. There were so many things I could have discussed it. I didn't even get to all of my questions. So certainly didn't get to everybody. Uh, You know, hey, happens sometimes. We'll do better. Uh, We'll have another opportunity on Wednesday. Uh, let's see. The people who dialed in didn't get to share questions. Did you have thoughts? What you heard from Dr. Bingham? Anything you learned? Anybody? Do you? And when you share your thoughts, you familiar with the term spade work? You can add that in as you proceed, folks. We miss totally have thoughts. Uh, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Our caller zero seven four seven. Yeah. Uh, greetings, Gus, and the rest of the callers. Um, no, I, I'm not familiar, uh, familiar with that term spade work. That was new to me. Um, the the question I had for Dr. Bingham was uh, the uh, Stephen Foster's songbook was a, a big part of my musical instruction during the 1960s when I was first learning to sing or choir and learning instruments. And, uh, you know, all those songs, Old Black Joe, Camp Town Races, et cetera. And I was just wanted to ask the doctor, uh, do they still include those songs in basic musical songbooks today? And that, that was kind of a question, you know, in Kentucky or what have you. Um, the other thing that kind of struck me about Stephen Foster, and I just, I didn't really realize this until really recently was that um, he was not a person of the South. You all, you talked about that. Do they talk about that much in that book that uh, he only visited the South one time briefly. And, uh, you know, he's writing all these songs, venerating slave culture in the South, but he, he grew up in Pennsylvania, lived in, in the North. So I, I always found that, I found that kind of interesting. I don't know if that that was discussed in the book. That's all I had. Much obliged. Good, sir. I wish you had been able to ask the doctor that directly. That is a portion of the book that we just didn't talk about with her. Um, But that is a big part of the early part of the book. And we even just touched on, I think, as you said briefly, that they're doing all this valorizing of him as a Southerner and, and Southern life, the Southern aristocracy. He was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Like, yeah, but yes, she talks about that in great detail and points out the irony and the lie of all of this. She spends a great deal of time talking about just laying out the history as you, he did not go to Kentucky to write this song. And they have all of these lies. That was another one I was going to point out because sometimes she calls this mythology and bunkum at the end of the day, white people lie 
and they invested in this lie and went in, you know, we'll pretty it up. You know, this is the piano and the bench that he sat on and all this other nonsense. Like, what are you talking? They even codified how to respond. So if people say, hey, how did you all verify that he came here? They said, well, you know, we, we, we can't verify. But according to local legend, they've had specific ways to say it. According to local legend, he was here. Wink, wink. They put it on the state quarter like they doubled down vested in this racist lie so hard. Oh, it's amazing. It's staggering. I learned so much. That's why. No, we don't need any footnotes. Brazil, anywhere else. We know my old Kentucky with the darkies are get. We know all about the gay darkies. Yes. Yes. But do they still teach it? I'm sure they do. They still teach Dixie, I mean, they still have lifetime renditions of that and choirs and all the rest. Camp Town Racing, Oh Susanna, Old Black Joe, they still play Dixie and all that at the uh, colleges and such. So I'm, I, I would be stunned uh, how they would not be teaching. Uh, they're going to play my old Kentucky home Sunday. I mean Saturday at the Derby. So yeah, I would think that they have to still have it in those uh, learners for young people. Uh, who are learning music, especially in certain parts of the world. But I would think so, that those songs are so ubiquitous. It just has to be. Uh, and then the answer to your other question, she would have been better to ask about that than myself, though. And then, yes, she goes into a lot of detail about Stephen Foster, uh, his upbringing. He was a drunkard. Um, the lie about this song, him living in Pennsylvania. Uh, he wanted to write more upscale songs, but that didn't sell white people wanted minstrel songs and so old black joe my old kentucky home that's you know go ahead and make that so you can make lots of money and lots and i mean she even gives the inflation calculator so you can see how much money that he made from all of these songs but uh yeah she goes into a lot of detail about that we just didn't talk about that as much when she was here uh other folks Hello. greetings everyone I heard uh, our caller, 5640. I heard retired, fire, retired firefighter in Florida as well. Uh, our female caller, 5640. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, good evening, Gus and everyone. Uh, that, Gus, that was a very fascinating inter- interview. Um, Kentucky is fascinating also for me. I've been kind of studying the culture a little bit there, white culture, that is, but what I observed from that, um, oh, and also, too, I've never heard of the term spade work. Um, I've just heard of the phrase, like, calling a spade a spade. You know, that's that's the closest I've heard it used. Um, but also in reference to the Kentucky Derby, and I don't know if it's specifically the K- Kentucky Derby, possibly so, but I know that um, all or most of the jockeys were black, you know, uh, a few centuries ago um and i know that lawn jockeys those little statues that uh some people put in their yards um uh i know that that's a remnant from that era but i also believe that lawn jockey could be used as a racial slur um and i I'm, i don't know if she she's ever the the guest i don't know if she ever delved into that um and i'll just give a just a, a short anecdote um i was looking at the twitter page, official twitter page of one of our black female uh, us ambassadors 
and a white male, because he had his photo up there, he one of the comments that he made was simply lawn jockey in reference to a photo of her. So I just wanted to share that. Thank you. Mm. Several folks so far not aware of the term spade work. Um, with regards to, yet yeah, this book does give a lot of fascinating information about Kentucky and how they invested in this song uh, knowingly and the minstrelsy of it all, hiring black people to come to the site like they made it a, a historic museum basically where they lied and said he came and wrote this song um, and got people to chip in and got money for it and all that made it the state song and then the Ducky, uh, Kentucky Derby made it the end they put it on the state quarter when they did the individual state quarters in the early 2000 aughts it's on the back of the Kentucky quarter, quarter uh, my old Kentucky home and it's got the old cabin and all that I think it's got a horse there too but I think they should have just put old black Joe there and you know called it a day um oh but i said our timing out of this world the metronome so this is 1a everything that she said that we did not talk about that is 1b wednesday 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific just straight line through and through um retired firefighter thank you for your patience sir greetings everyone uh with the uh the term uh I never heard of it but uh just by the pronunciation of the of the word I I was pretty sure that they wasn't talking about uh a digging uh tool uh it was had to be something negative with the term spade at the beginning of it uh but uh the I, I wanted to ask the guests uh, about how with these songs and uh, along with the songs also some of the some of the, the uh, uh, racist postures how they weaponize these things uh, to intimidate non-white people uh, to basically basically with the idea in mind of making them submit to uh white supremacists their power uh that sort of thing uh and uh just let her expound on how that is that those different type of uh songs and other gestures uh are used for that purpose uh for instance uh uh and I'm not talking about football I'm, it, it just happens to be centered in uh the sport of football Bobby Mitchell uh, who was the first uh, black Washington Redskin. Uh, he was, uh, uh, at the first meeting that he was at, he was forced to sing Dixie uh, by the owner of the Washington Redskins at the time. And uh, he stated, I didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know the words, so I just, I just moved my mouth. I just, you know, you know, I, you know how somebody does a, they're maybe playing a record with the voice, but actually he's just moving his lips. That's what he did, uh, you know, that sort of thing. And I've seen some other examples where that takes place, and just let her expound on that uh, if she has something to say on, on that particular subject. Because it, it is used a lot. Uh, uh, it, white people have an idea that uh, 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 
a lot of number of non white people don't belong with birds and the, the, the some of these songs, but uh white people can intimidate a non white person by saying if well if you don't do this you'll lose your job or you won't get this job. Or it can be something maybe more uh, challenging uh, uh, in what they want you to do uh, by using these type of items. Much obliged, retired firefighter. Sorry about that. Had to readjust my head. Waited till our guest departed to get my headset readjusted. I will say, in terms of the incident that you shared, Mr. Mitchell and the Redskins, where that was a part of the franchise where they played that song. Uh, it wasn't it, they before they changed the name of the franchise. It used to be in their fight song, "Hail to the Redskins, Fight for Old." Dixie, they sanitized it to fight for old DC, but in her book, she has an anecdote where Wynton Marsalis, uh, people who know him, entertainer, black male, he's supposed to go to the Kentucky Derby, and this is a part of like a, a fundraiser of some sort. Uh, where he's supposed to be there. And uh, I guess he's talking, it was another black male. I think this was all uh, coordinated with another black male. And this was all, like I said, a part of a fundraising effort. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Uh, I'll share because it's, it's uh, similar. Let me see. I highlight it's right towards the end of the book. Let's see. Uh, oh, 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 oh. Taking me. Oh, oh, oh. oh it's taking so. Oh, is that it? Is that it? Let's see. Thought I had it. I'm messing up. Give me. I'll find it in one second. For other folks, did I miss anybody who had a comment, question they wanted to make sure they get in? While I'm making sure I get that before we get ready to wrap up. I guess our caller oh three five six. Did you have comments you were going to get in oh seven four seven? Did you all have comments you were going to get in before we wrap up? Yes, sir. Can I be? Oh, thank you. Go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I. You know, one of the things that's interesting how powerful these songs are. You know, I when uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated, I was in the choir, and we were singing one of those minstrel songs. Um, them golden slippers, and uh, I always thought that was ironic that. Uh, I don't know. I still have that program that I've kept all these years. 
Wow. It's ubiquitous. It's ubiquitous all over the world. And that's why I said I'm pretty sure they probably do still have it, you know, are training even young children to play these songs because they still play them. Uh, I mean, I get current versions of Dixie. I don't go back and get the moldy, you know, 1940s, 1950s. I've gotten 21st century HD recordings of Dixie. Uh, Carry me back to old Virginia. We can get a fresh one on Saturday. Oh, I found it now. It just took me. Went and Marsalis threw me off. I'm bad at spelling. It's a name. W-Y-N-T-O-N. All right. This is from Chapter 10. Weep No More. Uh, on Derby Day 2002, when the Pulitzer Prize winning jazz trumpeter and composer Wynton Marsalis prepared to join the University of Louisville Cardinal Marching Band in their pre-race performance, Marsalis manager Andre Guess, a Louisvillian, arranged the appearance. Jazz at Lincoln Center was planning a 100 $30 million home for the program Marsalis directed and they needed to bring the campaign to the finish line. The national prominence of Winton playing at the Derby was part of that effort. Ten minutes ahead of the post before the band marched into position an official handed Marsalis a small card with the music to my old Kentucky home. The kind of card horn players clip to the end of their instruments. Man, what the fuck is this? Is what the guest remembered his client and close friend saying. What is this bullshit? What is this lyric right here? The darkies? No, I am not playing this shit. I'm not going out on television playing this shit. The card held Foster's 1853 lyrics. Andre envisioned millions of viewers anticipating the trumpet great, a household name. If he didn't show, oh my God, he is a New Orleans native. This flippin' song is about a black male being sold down the river to New Orleans. Lord Jesus. Anyway, uh, lost my flippin' place. Uh, if you didn't show up, that would be the headline. Wenton, you got to go out there. We agreed to do this. You agreed to it. I didn't agree. Aren't you from here? This is your fault. Don't you know your state song? Guess isn't sure if he did know the background of my old Kentucky home. If he did, he'd forgotten. We had a moment. The star was furious. As guests saw it, the show had to go on. The only show in town is the system of white supremacy. You're getting your ass out there, and I don't care if you just play, put the horn to your mouth, and act like you're playing. But you have to go out there. The sun shone bright that afternoon. NBC's footage cut between close-ups of a somber-seeming Marsalis and joyous fans singing along to what the announcer called the most sentimental moment in sports when one imagines even the horses get misty-eyed. Are you out of your flipping mind? I could vomit. 
Marsalis played my old Kentucky home, but guess recalled the only reason he did it was because of our relationship. Guess who is black could not see it then, but understands now that his friend was thinking about the world watching him play an old minstrel song and seeing him as complicit. I will stop there again. This is not ancient history. This is 2002. So after 9-11, this happens. Probably a lot of us alive at that time, but progress. That's what they'll say. The great Wynton Marsalis being forced to perform my old Kentucky home. That would be another reason why I'm very sure these songs are still in those books and being taught. Great anecdote to include. Glad we got glad I read the whole book. Jesus Christ. You would have a very different program if Gus T was lazy and did not read these books. My God, it would have been a very different program, folks. Was there someone else who was going to comment before we wrapped? I'm sorry. Yes, sir. Um, real quick, I took some notes. Um, I have heard of spade work. I've heard that um, on multiple construction sites. Um, <laughs> I believe how she used it was it refers to the action or the victim who's doing it, not so much of the tool. And I think that's how they use their refinement, um, usually to dark, um, dark ditch diggers, um, black, and now what they classify as Mexican, but um, I noticed that she did bring up the word chain gang when you mentioned it. I found that interesting. Um, she knows that black people were dish diggers or spade work. Um, she was highly refined. Um, she had a constant pattern of blaming victims with questions, um, as always, um, not answering questions from callers uh, with consistent pattern. Um, I noticed that she said she was able to sing a song without thinking about it. <laughs> I found that very interesting and deceptive. I wanted to ask her about that, but it wasn't much time. Um, I suspect that these songs were you were sang for um at lynchings and um what they call barbecues. About I was discussing that with other victims um about um the context of these songs, especially, you know, how you were um you Dixie on the show a lot. Um very, very chilling of what it means to be white. Um, and their um, cannibal consumption. <clears throat> um, these mystery shows, I found, um, I was taught them through watching cartoons when I was younger. Um, way more confused. Uh, Bugs Bunny, Tom and Jerry, um, all these songs are in all these cartoons as you're growing up. And uh, last but not least, uh, Gus, your timing with the cows is impeccable as always. Um, I kind of say it's divine almost. Uh, there was an article about Pele that just happened on Sunday. And just check that out for the book club coming up on Thursday. Thank you for your time. Uh, that's how we got here. That's how we got here with this program today, specifically reading that book, The Great Pele. Where was the uh, report published at? Was it New York Times? Or what was the outlet where they were publishing about Pele? Uh, the Sun... Um, Another outlet, um, one was blocked, 
but it has to do with just the pattern of what is revealed in that book. And you just check it out. I mean, yeah. Wow. Now this is kind of in line with what I just said. Delectable Negro, human consumption, homoeroticism in U.S. slave culture. The report that I'm looking at says what what he'd have wanted giant Pele doll with hand for penis leaves fans terrified after kicking off cup final in Brazil published today. And he does have kinky hair, so. And oh, it looks like his pants aren't even. We've been saying homoeroticism for the last three months as we finish out our book on Brazil. I can't say enough. That's how we ended up being being here today, reading this book, Negroes with Kinky Hair. The homoeroticism is all throughout this book. And wow, even even for today, because I already mentioned Delectable Negro and they were talking about biting the children with the alligator on the backside and poking them with the irons and he's cooking now and all of that. I'm sure they played Dixie at a uh, many of lynchings. I mean, it's just, they played it, sung it all of the above probably sung. In fact, Dixie is playing in the background in that documentary trouble behind about the purge of black people from Corbin, Kentucky. They're playing Dixie right when he's saying my dog was named nigger right there. That's in between. He talked about Bugs Bunny. That's in between Bugs Bunny in blackface. She mentions that in the book, too. I just included that in the intro. That wasn't random. That is the outro for the book talking about how exactly what he said. Dixie, my old Kentucky home, all these racist menstrual songs are rife throughout cartoons uh, for the 20th century, probably continuing on. Uh, and sometimes they have Dixie and these songs playing while Bugs Bunny is doing the blackface. That's the one that I played for today at the very beginning. You might have to go back and listen to it again, but that's right there. Dixie. I think he breaks into it. He breaks. <laughs> anyway, yeah, whole generations of folks grew up watching that. And then they do the same thing. They come arise and come around and boulderize them so that either the song isn't there or the blackface part. I found a bunch of those where they just take out the blackface performance part of it. And you just get the cartoon with some odd southern references and the song will be there what have you but you'll miss a lot of the overt oh okay I get what this is anywho uh, anything else folks good or anything else to share satisfied satisfied again the part B of this is Wednesday jockeys and all of that even how is it that there are no more black jockeys usual suspects racist woman racist man racist child there's even godfather is right there got the horse and owning a horse and how could you chop this toy oh. yeah yeah godfather right there as well as they meant there was a documentary that was in an NPR news report about sports betting not long ago and that's right here in this book too that's the culture of white supremacy cock fighting mentioned right in this book <sighs> delectable necro homo human consumption and homo eroticism in u.s slave culture was slave culture cock 
fighting. That's right in Roots. Chicken George. Cock fighting. And then go sit around and talk about Michael Vick. Anyway, all the uh, gambling and uh, what have you, that's in this book. But that will pop up again on Wednesday. The wagering, that all of that white culture, for a lot of it is revolving around betting on Negras. Anywho, uh, listener supported counter racist radio invest. If you think the program is constructive, uh, PayPal button is in the top right corner of the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Address again racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com. Much obliged for all of our investors who have kept us on the air. 14 years, hopefully better understanding of what it means to be white. The importance of words. Anyway, affirmative. I meant to ask about affirmative action because that came up and she is the representative of affirmative action. Dr. Emily Bing, white Bingham, white woman, not black people, but we'll get that another day. Anywho, much obliged for folks tuning in. Hope it was worthy of your Monday evening. Sobriety would be best. We heard about drunken white people ready to brawl over the Kentucky State song right at the beginning today. Keep it sober. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping no throwaway offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. Problem. You're a victim. Right. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Ah. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.